Well, Argentina has done something that nobody thought was possible pretty much anywhere, but especially in Argentina. I mean, this is a country that has largely been dominated by one political movement since the 40s, and it has been heavily left-wing. So how is it possible that Argentina has just elected what appears to be a genuine libertarian? Like not not the fake kind that like you know occasionally say that oh yeah I'm libertarian because I, I want to legalize drugs but I don't know anything about economics right no no this guy seems to actually know what he's talking about when when it comes to economic and political philosophy of of a liberty based approach to government and he didn't win by a couple of points he blew it out of the water and so today we're gonna we're gonna go through and we're gonna ask a couple of questions the first thing we're gonna ask is who is this guy right is is he actually the real deal, right? And will the powers that be actually let him do what he's promised? Because let's face it, we're talking about a region of the world where coups are not necessarily a unheard of sort of thing, especially in Argentina. So we're going to answer all these questions today. And we're also, we're also going to consider is something like this even possible in the United States right now? All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers. And thank you so much for joining us. We hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. I know we did. We did a lot of traveling. It was a really good time with family and everything. But if you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. Join our community chat. We would love to hear how your Thanksgiving went, week went there. Also, Nick, I see that um, you have a mug. Oh. A mug on your desk. I do Is have a right? mug. I do have a mug. It's a new mug. It's our uh, tread around and find out mug. We were really looking for something that we feel encapsulates the overall philosophy of making the argument yeah. and some of the other things that we do. And uh, yeah, we found the tread around and find out really just captured it all. Where can folks get that? Oh, they can get it at a, a and when this is the part where I've, I've, I'm a little embarrassed, but um, you know, look, well, we, all, we all come to this point. Inflation is bad. It has impacted all of us. And I've been, I've had people ask me for over a year now, if I would, ever consider doing something like this. And so I've set up an only mugs page. And so if you, you are looking for some of the mugs that we feature, you can find them on, on only mugs. Also, uh, that, that is only M U G Z. Yeah. M U G Z. We made it, we made it fresh. Right. For, with, the, with the kids. All right. I so, think the URL was just cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we're, we're trying to be hip and with it. All right. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas. With us today, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees. Hello, everyone. And then we have our resident historian, political prognosticator, and mostly benevolent warlord in training, Christian Hines. How are you doing, Christian? Los Malvinas, Sonde, Argentina. Christian is so excited right now. <laughs> like, this is this is his dream candidate that just got elected. So we're going we're gonna to see if it all plays out. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that, that doesn't right. like central banking. You're exactly right, Nick. Let's all righty. to it. Because so I think in today's episode, we're going to be talking about central banks. Oh my gosh, we're going to be talking about a lot of things because this this guy is, I mean, I am I am cautiously optimistic. People ask, why aren't you more? Because I'm just, I don't know. I, I, we'll see what happens. So so let's, let's start off uh, with this. Here, here's the first thing you need to understand about Argentina. 
the the United States, it is the most prosperous country in the world. And I would say the vast majority of that is due to an emphasis on individual liberty, freedom of inquiry, private property rights, free market economics. Now, that doesn't mean that we have a perfectly free economy. No one really does. But ours has gotten less free over the last couple of decades instead of more free. You had a kind of a, a temporary reprieve during the Trump administration where it did become more free in some respects, which is really important. But um, there, there has been a trend lately within the United States for a less free economy. But having said that, comparatively with the rest of the world, it is still very much a free economy. And all these things have led to great prosperity. Now, some people will try to explain all that away and say, no, 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 it's just because you're conveniently located in between true two major oceans with no you know, uh, countries capable of invading you. And you have all these natural resources and all this land. And that's what makes you rich. Well, if that's the case, Argentina should also be pretty rich. Now, that's not to say that Argentina hasn't had to fight wars with a neighbor. It has, but not recently, at least not, not of any of any significant, um, you know, status. It, it, it completely avoided World War I and World War II. Um, in addition to that, it has just tons of of natural resources. It has deep water ports. It has a, a, a multitude of, of, of arable farmland and ranching land. I mean, it should be a rich nation. And in fact, it used to be. It was actually one of the richest nations in the world. But then some things started to happen, not the least of which was a combination of autocracy in some cases, but also a lot of left-wing social and economic policy that started to take place. So let's go ahead and look at this first, this first article we're going to, want to talk about. And th this is all about, and he says, this is everything you need to know about Peronism from a 2014 article in The Economist. So what you need to know is Juan Perón took over Argentina in 1945. Now, now Argentina's heyday was, what would you say, Christian? It's kind of like 20s. Um, but uh, leading up to the 20s, you know, we actually did 20s. a wine minute on this, and I feel dumb for not including that in, in the links for today's episode. If you're listening or you're watching on YouTube, when you're done with this episode, go check out the wine minutes. We did an episode on Argentina earlier this year, yeah. and we talked about the history there. And in the beginning of that episode, we talked about how at the turn of the century in the early 20th century, so this is like the 1900s, 1910s, and the 1920s. Argentina was considered one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It had a standard of living on par with the German Empire, the French Republic, even the United States. Yeah. One well, and here's here's the article in 2014 from the Economist. Uh, the country that's being Argentina ranked among the ten richest in the world. Its standing as one of the world's most vibrant economies is a distant memory. Its income per head now is 43 percent of those same 16 rich economies. As the urban working class population swelled, so did the constituencies susceptible to Perón's promise to support industry and strengthen workers' rights. Now, for those of you that think, well, wait a second, Perón wanted to support industry. Is it isn't that isn't that supporting capital? Is it okay? No, whenever they want to support industry, they're essentially attempting to manipulate it either through direct government control, which is considered nationalization of major industry, or they're trying to heavily regulate and control it through more of a fascist economic policy, right? And so you see, you see socialist and fascist trends there. And quite frankly, there, there's not a great deal of difference between socialist economic policy and fascist economic policy when you. I take that back. There is in the sense that socialists want the state to own um, the industry, whereas fascists want the state to heavily control, regulate, and direct uh, industry. So in, in both 
in both systems, we're talking about a massive level of control. It's just that one allows for a little bit more um, private property ownership than, than the socialist state. And, and it's fascinating. I, I always like to tell some of my colleagues on the left when they say, we're not socialists. We don't. I'm like, no, no, no. Your, your economic policy is not socialist because most of you don't want to take over industry within the country. It's more fascist. And, and they, don't, they don't like it when I point that out. And then there's a chart right here. It says, take a look at this chart from the article showing Argentina's per capita GDP relative to other nations. As you can see, the country used to be much richer than Brazil and considerably richer than Japan. And all through the first half of the 20th century, Argentina was not that far behind the United States and other wealthy nations. But then look at the lines starting after Perón came to power in the late 1940s. Scroll down a little bit more. In other words, Perón's policies reduced the comparative prosperity of the ordinary people, just like similar policies have reduced the comparative prosperity of ordinary people in Venezuela. What makes these numbers especially powerful is not the convergence theory assumes that the gap between rich and nations uh, and poor, rich nations and poor nations should shrink yet status policies are causing the gap to widen um, let's go ahead and go to the next article and this all comes from foundation for economic education this gives you kind of an idea of, okay, so what did Perón specifically do? The Perón regime expanded the power of labor unions, spent lavishly on welfare schemes, and waged class warfare against the rich. For a brief time, it seemed to work. Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world and easily the richest in South America. More cronyism and bigger government appeared affordable, but such things always set in motion trends and policies that are unsustainable. It wasn't long before the debts, deficits, and paper money, or fiat currency, on top of higher taxes and crippling labor turmoil, drove the pace so down and the economy with it. As Britain's Margaret Thatcher put it, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. This is another thing to, to point out, which is really important and why socialist regimes tend to you know, linger way beyond um, you know, any of their usefulness. If, if you have a country that has a reasonable level of prosperity, and generally what's happening and what you saw within the, the Argentine economy is there, there was a lot of cronyism before Perón. You, you did have the state benefiting certain uh, industrialists, certain landowners at the expense of, of others. And so there was this legitimate grievance. But what Perón essentially came in and did was, was push more of a state-directed economy. Now, when you're first confiscating lands and you're redistributing it, when, when you're first taking over or industries and then you're redistributing wealth, you're going to have a lot of money to, to give out. You're going to you're going to be able to objectively improve people's lives in the short run. The problem is, is that what they just said in the article, you have set in motion certain incentive structures, which is overall damaging to both the the economic prosperity and the economic freedom of a particular country. Or, or economic of your people. And in the end, what, what always ends up happening, you're going to see evidence of this later as we talk to some of the election maps, is the people that were closest to the, the people wielding power, the government officials, they do relatively okay under Peronism, but the poor don't do very well. And property owners or business owners who are not closely connected to the government don't do well at all. And so what you end up doing is you end up driving out the very people that were necessary to be able to build these industries in the first place. Um, go ahead and uh, scroll down a little bit more. I want to read more. Socialism of the fascist variety was exactly what Peron and the Peronists were building. 
though it didn't mature into the full-throated form of the Hitler or Mussolini or Hugo Chavez types, to the core it was nationalist, populist, interventionist, demagogic, and authoritarian. More ominous even than its economic policy were the regime's assaults on civil liberties. Many of those attacks were indirect and wrapped in velvet. The charismatic colonel and his devoted cheerleader, Eva Perón, always claimed that whatever they did was for the people, especially the poor or shirtless ones. In their biography, Evita, the real life of Eva, Eva, Eva Perón, Nicholas Fraser and, uh, Mariasa Navarro, I apologize for the pronunciation, quote an opposition attorney who described Juan Perón's ruling style this way. He is subtle, devious, charming. He does not come out into the open and crack skulls. He does his work silently and cynically. You see, there is so little we can put our hands on these days. Everything he does is in the name of democracy and social betterment. And yet we sense the smell of evil in the air and the thin edge on which we walk. Juan Perón dissolved the Labor Party that elected him and formed his own, which he dubbed the Peronist Party. If you opposed the move, you were politically excommunicated, jailed, or worse. One legislator who decried the emergence of Perón's totalitarian junta found himself repeatedly attacked in the streets of Buenos Aires by Peronist thugs. Where the law made the strategy of legal coercion possible, Perón made use of it. Otherwise, he resorted to dire threats and petty intimidation. So does any of this kind of sound familiar? And now keep in mind... You, you can look at college professors in the United States that will hold up Perone as, as an example of things that we should try here because, after all, he strengthened the labor unions and he was for the workers and he was for the people. Yeah, unless you weren't his people. And then he used the full force of government and gangs against you. Let's go ahead and go to the um, – the, the reason I point this out, because you might be asking, okay, we'll make this happen in 19, the 1940s and, and 50s and, and, and 60s. You know why? The Peronist party has more or less – controlled Argentine politics since the forties. Now that doesn't mean there haven't been breaks in that there, there have, but for the most part, it has been the dominant party, both with respect to the president and with respect to the leg legislature in Argentina. Now let's see where this has led us to go to the next graph, because this is going to give you some indication. Like why was it? Because in, in, in American kind of political theory, here's, here's what you would hear. You would hear, well, Nick, Yes, you you have uh, you know the the you have the Peronists that have been ruling for so long and and they've kind of controlled the industry and they're they're so much they're so powerful and influential within culture that um, if if you really want to run against them and you want to make some changes you got to make some small incremental changes you got to kind of work within the system as it is you've got to expect you've got to accept the reality as we find it and, and look you know maybe maybe sometimes there there's a there's a place for that. But obviously it hadn't been working in Argentina because let's look at the inflation rates. So this goes from 2017 to 2023. Now you're going to look right here in the year 2022 inflation in the world, the world inflation rate was 7.97%. In the United States, it was 8%. In the E, excuse me, in the EU, it was 8.83. In Argentina, it was 94.8%. The year before that, it was 48.1. The year before that, 42. The year before that, 53. The year before that, 34. Scroll down a little bit more. Here's what you're going to see. Um, in, in 1990, I want to I point out to another point here. In 1989, it was 3,000%. In 1990, it was 2,000%. Right In 84, it was 626%. So inflation has been something that Argentina has been dealing with for a long time. They only briefly seem to have got it under control from about 1994 to 2001. Right? That, was, that was a period where they, they had it reasonably under control. 
but for the rest of the time, it's just who was it's, in power for that seven years. That's a good question. I don't have that off the the top of my mind, or right, off the off on my notes here. Go ahead and scroll up a little bit. Um, scroll up a little bit more. Okay, so the the question is is like we we can see right now that Argentina is a country with a lot of natural resources. It has a lot of natural advantages. It should be a very very wealthy country, and we know that because it was once. Right, and, answer, and, not, and nothing has significantly changed to not make it that way. Go ahead and answer. To answer Tina's question, it was Carlos Menem, uh, who was in charge at the time, who originally identified as a Peronist, but he led the way in, shocker, free market liberalization in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then they snapped is, right <clears throat> back after he was gone. Remember, this is in the... Uh, so so to, to give a, a brief, very brief political history post Perón, post Avita and all that type of stuff. Argentina had a military dictatorship that ruled the country until the country's defeat in the Falklands War in 1982. And yeah. the aftermath of that humiliating defeat, which from their perspective was unexpected because the Falklands is right next door. They should have taken it and held it, but they didn't. The British kicked them out. There was basically a revolution that overthrew the military government. Uh, with the collapse of the junta, the Peronists came back into power, but the basically the the regime that replaced the military regime identified as Peronist, but what you see and you actually see this in a lot of countries around the world throughout history, the the left wing, actually more center left, more moderate faction of the Peronists decided to do something like basically commit an act of heresy and liberalize the economy. You saw something similar in Germany mm-hmm. where it was like the SPD at one point was the party that was doing things like privatizing some of these state-owned industries and reforming the welfare system and stuff like that. It's not like that they were all like, you know, suddenly economic free market libertarians, but they, they took a step back from full-blown throated socialism. And so basically Menem's uh, administration implemented most of the free market reforms that Argentina has today. And that's what led to the recovered economy in the, in the nineties. I have a question about these numbers because as we all know, and we've covered in other podcasts that the U S inflation rate is actually, it's probably closer to 18. We're, we're cooking the books because our government changes the rules on how they measure these things every time it looks dire for them. And so what I'm wondering is, do other countries do that as well? And does the world number also cook the books? I'm sure that was, so this is being used by uh, world data, um, dot info, they're probably using the same inflation rates that the United States currently uses. And I I mean, I'm coming to that conclusion because when it comes to when, when they look at 8% for 2022, that was based off of the, the change that took place, I think in 1982 or 83, where they started changing the way that they actually measured inflation. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming they use that and then just applied it for all of these countries. I don't think they use the, the individual method for gauging inflation for each individual. Now is that, um, you you mentioned a long time ago they they would basically what the the average household would purchase your purchasing power let's say we used to buy steaks and steaks now cost this much but they're now adjusting it because people change their behavior and now they're doing like steak to ground beef or yeah. something like that where it's like oh we'll just do red meat so in, instead that- instead of tracking the price of of essentially the same item over time they will now include like items well, there right. can be a huge price differential Le between Mignon like items. If your like item is beef. anything that's beef, right. 
Okay, well, that's a beef hot dog, and that's filet mignon. So we're gonna we're gonna count that as the same thing, basically, right? That that's a problem. I'm not saying it's that extreme, but it's it's pretty bad. So the the point is, is that it, it, anybody that's trying to tell you that, well, gosh, maybe the problem is is Argentina didn't try central planning enough. Maybe the problem is Argentina didn't invest enough in the social welfare state. Maybe the problem is is Argentina didn't have enough control over rogue industries and capitalism. Yeah, that that was not the issue. And right. for the people that believed that, they had a candidate in mind, the yeah. Kirchners. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were the ones that succeeded in the uh, late 90s and early to, in the early 2000s. They came along and basically the Kirchners, um, you know, in, in, were basically Peronists 2.0. Yeah. And they ruled the country on and off. Uh, Nestor and then his, his wife um, ruled the country on and off. I, I mean, all the way up until the, the modern day. Um so, you know, from the early 2000s all the way until the 2010s, they were the new face of the, they were basically the, again, the successors to the Peronists. So it wasn't as if like, oh, Argentina liberalized the economy in the 90s and then things got good, but then things got bad because they kept liberalizing the economy. No, they had a respite yeah. where they liberalized the economy and then immediately veered right back into hardcore well, and, and we see We see this a lot where all of a sudden somebody comes in and they start making necessary changes. Like you can see this in China. China started to liberalize their economy without liberalizing their, their social or civic policies, but they started to liberalize their economy. Well, what happened? Well, they started to see massive economic gains as a result of it. And the West kind of assumed that with those massive economic gains would eventually come greater political liberty, greater civil liberties, things of that. Well, it, it didn't happen. And now you're starting to see where China now is is going the opposite direction because they still kept the central planning. They still kept the, the massive fiat currency. They kept all of those things. And the problem is, is that whenever you do, um, you know, half halfway le- um, economic liberalization, there will always be people that as soon as wealth starts to get created, they'll be the ones to immediately jump on and say, oh, well, look, the wealth is created. It's time to redistribute. It's like, no, the reason why the wealth existed in the first place was because you actually allowed the freedom of people to choose just like good ranchers. That's right. If you want the freedom to be able to choose the best quality meat, and I'm not talking about this sort of crappy inflation scale where it's like, oh, hot dog or filet mignon. No, no. You want the best quality American raised beef, pork, poultry, you want wild-caught salmon, Good Ranchers has got your back, just like they've got our back here on this channel. So if you are looking for something delicious to put on your table during the holiday season and you use promo code Nick, you're going to get $10 off, Yep, $10 off, you're going to get free shipping. And here's the thing we really want to encourage you to take a look at this year because Christmas shopping gets difficult. It gets very difficult for me. Stressful. It gets stressful. And like, what, what am I going to do? When am I going to buy these people that I care about? And now here, there's gift boxes. So if, if you were wondering, if you've got that person that you were looking to shop for, we were, gosh, you know, what is this, what does this person need? Well, they probably need a box of meat. That's probably what they need. So if you've got that hard, difficult to shop for person in your life, you can go over to goodranchers.com right now and you can look at those gift boxes. And again, if you're just looking to, to sign up for one of those subscriptions, ensure that you have the best quality meat, poultry, pork, wild-caught seafood coming to your, your table. This holiday season, you go on there, you use promo code Nick, you get the $10 off, you get the free shipping. Plus, you get to support a company that is not only supporting our values, not only supporting a fine product, but is also supporting this show. So for all of you who's wondering, how do, I, how, do, how do we support making the argument, Nick? Go buy some steak from Good Ranchers. All right. So now that we've kind of set the uh, we've kind of set the tone for what's been going on in Argentina for the past what uh, I'm doing the math real quick seventy years. I just can't believe you didn't take that softball that I lobbed your direction asking about 
hamburger versus filet mignon. <laughs> that was my fault. I, I, I was, I told, it was like, I looked over in the comments as soon as we were talking about that. And everyone's like, Tina totally set him up and he didn't feel like all oh, the good ranchers ad is coming so soon. Tina, Tina set him up. He screwed it up. Totally whiffed on that softball. You know, I was expecting, <laughs> I was expecting you to make uh, a reference to Argentina's famous beef industry. Oh yeah, it is. Oh, okay. So quick segue story. And then we're going to go into the next part of this. I, I had to go down for work to Columbia and we were training on a, like analytical software and things like that. And the whole time we were just in the hotel and at work, couldn't go anywhere. And then the last night they took us to a steakhouse in Bogota, Colombia, and you got to order your steak based off of the country in South America you wanted it from. And you could, I, it was, it was, and I wasn't paying. So I was like, let me see here. Like, I, I think I'll order off the right side of the menu today. <laughs> no, it was pretty good. All right. So we've, we've laid the groundwork, right? We've, we've laid the groundwork. Argentina largely run by, um, you know, central planning, uh, you know, socialists, quasi socialist slash fascist light. Um, and, and anybody that would say they didn't give it the old college try, it's like, how many more decades do you require to give it a try? Right? So they had it. Now, did the opposition run kind of like a, a, a Peronist light candidate. Did they run someone that was thinking to themselves, look, we, we got operated in the world that was the voters have spoken for decades now and we've just got it. We've just got to say, Hey, look guys, let's just, let's just, just let's centrally Nick, plan. The people want this. Let's centrally plan just a little bit less, right? We're not going to get rid of this. So we can't they run who can the get rid of the central of planning. Our AOC. Um, basically, no, I'm talking like about, if we were to run AOC is what, what they I, I don't think that comparison no. works. The, here's the thing. People, a lot of people are comparing them to Trump and you're going to see some videos and you're going to see kind of why that. Oh, I thought that you were talking about the left. No, 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 no. Uh, you're going to see why some people are comparing him to Donald Trump. Um, I don't think that's a, an accurate comparison. No, he looks like he should be part of the Beatles. Um, <laughs> he's got the mutton chops and I, you know, let's bring back the mutton chops. Those are kind of fun. You really, mean, okay, babe, you want me to you want me to grow mutton chops? I want you to think about uh, that statement. Yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, I mean Macri like, was uh was kind of and I might be butchering his name, but but Macri, the the previous president, was kind of like that the the bland center right guy. He he represents like the the brief interruption that you see where the Kirchners were in charge. Yeah, but I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this guy. No, well the reason so the reason I bring this up though is because the response to the revival of Peronism in the form of the Kirchner's post 1990s. Yeah. Cause like, like currently uh, Mrs. Kirchner, Christina is at least I believe her name is Christina. I'm going to look it up. But anyway, uh, um, Nestor uh, Kirchner's wife is currently the vice president right now, at least for wow. the next, for the next 10 days or so. Um, but it's just, so like, again, they, they were running the show for a very long time on and off. And the response from the right was usually to run Let's be honest, the Argentine equivalent of Mitt Romney. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and they Gross. they won an election in 2015, very, very close election. And then in 2019, they lost again. You you mean when there's no real difference between the candidate you've elected and the guy that you got rid of, all of a sudden people get disillusioned with whether or not you actually provide an, an, a real choice? So what kind of candidate did the left run? Because at first well, I was saying I thought they ran a really far leftist. No. So actually, yeah. okay, they were a little so bit worried too. In, in 2023 this year. The, the response from, from the pronist was we need to, nobody wanted to run. Th this was the funny thing. Nobody on the left wanted to run for president on the left wing side, the, even though they were running the country, right? The Kirshners decided to not run. 
The incumbent president decided to not run. Nobody else from the Peronist side of the party wanted to run. So you know who they had to run because literally nobody stepped up to the plate? The econ, the econ minister. Oh, my God. The minister of the economy at a time when inflation is 140%. Our wow. graph shows 94% in 2022. It jumped to over 140% this year. They decided to run the minister of the economy this year because they didn't have anyone else that wanted to run. And, you know, it. the optics of that obviously did not look fantastic. And I know that we're getting a little bit off track here, Nick. But So, all right. So we're going we're gonna to introduce you to Javier now. Excuse me, Javier Gerardo. I always screw up these names. Javier Gerardo Millet. All right. So, born 22 October 1970, is an Argentine politician, economist, and author who was the president elect of Argentina before entering politics. Uh, Millet gained not uh, notability as an economist, as the author of multiple books on economics and politics, and for his distinct political philosophy as a vocal proponent of the Austrian school. Holy crap. Um, he critiqued the fiscal policies of various Argentine administrations and advocates reduced government spending. As a university professor, <laughs> Mile taught, taught courses in macroeconomics, economic growth, microeconomics, and mathematics for economists. He also wrote numerous books and hosted radio programs. In 2021, he was elected as a member of the Argentine Chamber of Deputies representing the city of Buenos Aires for La Libertad Avanza. This is like the Libertarian Party of Argentina. As a national deputy, he limited his legislative activities to voting, focusing instead on critiquing what he calls Argentina's political elite and its propensity for high government spending. Mille pledged not to raise taxes and donated his national deputy salary through a monthly raffle. <laughs> he defeated economy minister Sergio Massa in the second round. All right, we're going to get into that a little bit later. Mille is known for his flamboyant personality, distinctive personal style, and strong media presence. I'm going to get out of this because in, instead of, you know, these articles telling you who he is, I want you to see who he is. Now, all of this is in Spanish, so for those of us who are, who are listening on the audio and can't watch the translation, I'm going to read off what, he, what he's saying for you, so hopefully that's not too disruptive. But um, let's go ahead and look at just some of the things. So Argentina's new president explains the uh, uh, Cantillon effect or how printing money benefits the first receivers of money at the expense of everyone else. You've first, talked about this a we, lot. We, we have. We, we've... <laughs> We've talked about this in Why Minutes. We've talked about this on podcasts. I have never seen a politician with maybe the exception of Rand Paul or maybe Thomas Massey. Nobody in the United States talks about this effect of inflation. Nobody. All right, so let's see what he has to say. This is why inflation leads to poverty. He goes, inflation is poverty, it truly is. In economic theory, it's called the Hume-Cantillon effect, meaning the one who receives the money last from the printer loses. But why? And who receives the money first? The politician to spend it. So the first to benefit from this is the politician because he receives the money today at yesterday's price. Now what happens when the politician starts to spend it? First the retail prices rise, then the wholesale prices rise, then wages go up. So who loses? The one receiving the money last. This is why. When you get a raise, you've been beating they've been beating you up for months already. This is why the worker is always last. And in this situation, because the process made your net wage shrink, they are dragging you down. Pause. Holy crap. Like, he's 100% he's correct, right? But when I, when I watch Republican politicians in the United States talk about inflation, all they, oh, the price of the grocery store is too high, and this is too high, and this is too... They, they don't talk about 
what is actually going on. They, they don't mention putting, the Cantillon effect. No. And, and they put the emphasis on all these business owners who are gouging. They're gouging. And yes. it's not about that. It's not. I mean, and I hear Republicans say it all yeah. the time. These business owners, these greedy Because they people. don't have a freaking clue. Because I, I will tell you this right now. M- most politicians in general, and I would argue most Republicans, they have a vague inclination of economic policy and theory. They have a, they have a vague a vague understanding of it where it's like, well, I think the, the free market stuff is better. Or we're, this is why you see so many Republicans like, oh, I'm pro-business. So that's why we're going to give them the subsidy. That's not being pro-free market. That's not a, a good understanding of how economic principles work. That's just saying, oh, business is good, so let's give it money. And then on the left, it's like, well, it's good when people have more money, so let's increase the minimum wage. Oh, I didn't realize we could just arbitrarily increase the prices of things with no you know, detrimental effects and other aspects of the economy. He's actually, he did the best job. He explained that in what, like a minute 30? Even then. He did a great job of explaining that, no, inflation is not just bad because it causes prices to go up. Inflation is bad because it screws over you at the benefit of politicians. This is the difference. And here's how it does that. And he explained it in a way that pretty much anybody could look at and be like, oh, that makes sense. This is the difference between, I mean, somebody, let's be honest, somebody who's a proper economist, professional economist like he is, and quite frankly, an actual political demagogue. And I bring this up because... There's a lot of people, and we'll get to it later in this episode, he gets a ton of hate, a yeah. ton of hate, notably from the left, from the media, from all the institutions oh, that we're the gonna left get into ideologically that. captured. And they, they keep trying to paint him as a radical. They keep trying to paint him as a demagogue. I mean, they're even trying to paint him as an authoritarian, right-wing authoritarian, yeah. libertarian. Yeah. That sounds mutually contradictory. And the reason that, that they're bringing this stuff up is because, quite frankly, there's a huge difference between somebody like him and somebody who actually is a demagogue. Now, does he use populist rhetoric? Does he, and you'll, sure. you'll see later in this episode when we play some of the other clips, like he has a very eccentric style to him. But this is actually why I think that, that the comparisons to Trump aren't really fair. I, I actually think he's better than Trump because he certainly has a deeper understanding of, of well, and a listen. Trump Trump has a, a, a very strong understanding of economic policy from the position of, of a businessman as a developer, and, and he understands a lot of the... However, there are things that Trump did with respect to inflationary monetary policy, with respect to certain tariffs and things like that, that I'm sorry, are, are not sound economic policy long run. They're just not. And I say this as someone who voted for him twice and will vote for him again if he gets the nomination. But that's the reality. I, I don't see anybody explaining it the way he is. Yes, and, and so like... Anybody that's saying like, well, Malay's just a demagogue. A demagogue would not be getting up there on a talk show and explaining the intricacies of the Cantillon effect. No. A demagogue instead would be getting up there and saying, you know, I'm workers of the world unite. You know, you know what an actual demagogue in this country would be doing? A demagogue would be getting up there saying we're going to retake the Falklands. That's what an actual demagogue would be saying. But instead he's getting up there and explaining very, very, let's be honest, very, very detailed explanations of things that that are intrinsic to the Austrian school of economics because that's where he's coming from. He sounds a little bit like Thomas Massey to me the way because Thomas Massey will explain things in depth. The only difference is Thomas Massey will like make some kind of Lord of the Rings reference (laughs) or he'll do something kind of goofy. Uh, but this guy's being a little more serious, although I think he gets a little crazy. <laughs> oh, no, he, he definitely, definitely gets crazy. <laughs> yeah, he definitely gets, And we love Thomas Massey here, by the way. All right. Yep. Let's go ahead and watch this next uh, speech. This is th- this is just described as this is literally uh, Javier's best speech ever. Um, just watch this and enjoy. OK, I'm going to again, I'm going to read along as he's talking. 
We aren't above the ones we represent. In financial terms, the derivative is never worth more than the underlying asset. The derivative exists because the underlying asset exists. We, ex we exist as representatives of the people because the people exist. It is madness, it is delusional to think that a representative of the people is above the people themselves. It is a delusion in which the political caste lives. In our government, the politicians will have the same privileges that the common citizen has. They will have to internalize their externalities. They will have to internalize their externalities. If they screw up, not only will honest Argentines suffer the consequences, the politicians are going to suffer even more. They will have to live like the honest Argentines live. The privilege, their privileges are over. The party is over. This is something only an outsider can achieve. Only a guy who comes from outside can do it. And not just any kind of outsider. Because history is full of outsiders who get into pre-existing structures. We are outsiders, outsiders. Because we are outsiders with a pre-existing structure. We built it for this. What for? To kick their ass out. <laughs> the party is over. Privileges for politicians are over. It's over. A different Argentina is impossible with the same old people. Enough with this. The party is over. That's why they want to smear me. That's why they send my way the 200 loser economists. That's why they send my way the pseudo-intellectuals. That's why they send my way the slum priests. That's why they attack me through the media. That's why the prebendary businessmen attack me. Because the party is over. Why does the attack intensify? Because they believe that this wasn't going to happen. They realize now that the population is shouting freedom. They shout freedom. They discover that they don't want to be lambs. They discover that they feel better being lions. Because as I said in my first speech, I did not come here to guide lambs. I came here to awaken lions. And they are waking up. They are waking up. They will devour the thieving politicians. They will devour the prebendary pre pre businessmen. They will devour the unionists that betray their people. They will devour those in the media who were functional to all of these thieves to keep this party going. They will do away with the econo frauds, the polagogues, and all that garbage. They advocate for the religion of the state because they steal from it. Argentina is waking up. Is there light? Yes, there is light because people are waking up. They discovered that slavery is not a good deal and there is a better life which is to live free as men, or to live as free men. This is why you are seeing what you are seeing. This works just like an exponential function. At some point, there was a turning point, and now they cannot stop it. They cannot stop it. When the exponential function begins to grow, you cannot stop it. Gosh, dang. <laughs> I, I, I feel inspired. Holy yeah. crap. There's better. I, I would actually argue, because I went through most of these clips when we were building the outline. There's there's way better, way better clips of him than this one. But, I, I, I mean, this... You know, he kind of reveals his, you know, economist bona fides here, but he does not mince his words at all, does he? No. Can you imagine if uh, a politician talked like that in the U.S., though? Like, think about what CNN well, and Trump MSNBC, what they would all do. I mean, 
Trump didn't even say things that were quite that outlandish. The idea that the they'll these lions are going to devour all of these things. I mean, it, it, basically, they would be like, you're calling for the destruction. Ah, insurrection. Yeah, yeah. We, we have to address this. This is a comment that I saw yeah. that just needs to be addressed. Somebody said, is he actually an outsider, though? I saw his name on the WEF's website. The WF, oh, yeah. so, so the WF keeps a catalog of public figures on their website. That yeah. does not mean that they support them. That doesn't mean they back them. Please please understand this, because this is one of the most frustrating things I've seen. And this is a, this is a great question and and it's a good question to ask because obviously if a politician is associated with the WEF that's that's a huge red flag by the same token there's been politicians like Vivek had, or uh, Vivek had to like sue the WEF he's like take my name off the crap that you're doing i never authorized you to use it keep in mind that <laughs> the left isn't stupid and and they do understand that they can potentially if they can't co-opt you they will still try to smear you and sometimes they can smear you through association and so the idea that the WF wants anything to do with this guy is 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 absurd. It is on its face absurd. But it's it's always it is always relevant and it's always responsible to ask the question, "Hey, I heard this, is this true?" But just please keep in mind that that a lot of times they will try to do guilt by association in order to try to undermine a candidate that we would love by suggesting that oh, they've been secretly co-opted. Like they're not beyond using that sort of tactic. We had a really good question coming from our Rumble audience, and they said, can you briefly explain the Austrian School of Economics? No. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me do my best. Um, so trying to, trying to briefly explain an entire school of, of economic theory is, is very difficult. To, to give you an idea, um, the, 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 Keynesian, the Keynesian school is, is a popular one on the, on the, left -hand so, on the, on the left side of the spectrum, and then obviously you have the Marxist school of economics. You also have like the Chicago school, which is more on, on the right. Um, and then you have the Austrian school. And, and the, the best way that I could um, kind of try to differentiate the Austrian school versus other economic schools is, is the, this concept of praxeology or what Ludwig von Mises called human action. And so uh, let me give you kind of a, uh, an example, and, and, I, and I know I'm oversimplifying this. In, in a lot of other schools of economics, you'll see these massive equations trying to explain um, economic activity. And, oh, if we, if we put in this factor, well, then it's going to affect this factor over here, and here's the other factor. But it's, it's very mathematically oriented. The, the Austrian school relies a lot more on inductive and deductive reasoning, which is to say that what we know about economics in any given um, in, in any given situation is that people respond to incentives and they don't always respond in the ways that we anticipate or that mathematical equations can anticipate. And so the Austrian school, um, one of the, one of the major components of it was something called marginal utility. And let me explain what that means. Um, Karl Marx believed that something had value, like this coffee mug's value was associated based off of the sum total of labor that went into creating the coffee mug, right? So it was a combination of what it took to get the various materials, what it took to you know, discover them, what it took to ship them, what it took to organize them, what it took to do the printing, what it took to do the shipping. And when you added all that up, that was the, the value of this particular mug. And even people like Adam Smith, who's kind of considered the father of capitalism, also subscribed in part to the labor theory of value. What marginal utility states is that, no, <laughs> this mug is, is valued at what someone is willing to pay for it. 
And based off of the number of mugs available to you, you might value one mug more than others. So if this was the last mug on earth and you really wanted it, you might pay more for it. If there was a billion of these things and we were handing them out for free, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pay anything for it. And so one of the things that the Austrian school focused on was the value of things are, are associated with what someone is willing to pay based off of scarcity. And the other thing the Austrian school really focuses on is that minimal government intervention is important because no central planner, no matter how brilliant they are, no matter how many resources they have available to them, no central planner can possibly know what billions of people around the world want or prefer within the marketplace on any given day. Nor can those same central planners possibly anticipate all of the different things that are going to affect the means of production in order to get people the things that they prefer. And so the Austrian school places a high degree of value on allowing for property rights and individual liberty and freedom within the marketplace because not because you as an individual will make always make the best economic decisions, but because you are far closer to the economic decisions that you want to make and that you need to make than any politician could ever possibly be. And the more you centralize the power over economic decisions, the, the larger the problems that you create because there's a ripple effect going all the way down from that, that first mistake. So that is not an excellent overview of Austrian economics, but um, hopefully that provides some insight into what differentiates the Austrian school from like the Keynesians or the neoclassical uh, classical or the Chicago school. All right, uh, let's go ahead and go to the next uh, speech here. All right, um, this, is, this is posted on Twitter by Benny Johnson. It says, the most important answer any politician has given ever. That's a pretty high marker, Benny. Yes. All right, let's see, let's see. Socialism has become ascendant really in the United States, as you may have noticed, with the attendant symptoms you described, massive public debt levels, increasing poverty, disorder, crime, filth, and ugliness. Argentina's at the end stage of that. Argentina is now a poor country because of those policies. What yeah. advice we would you give to We have a brief audio problem. Uh, give me 30 seconds. Okay. All right. So yeah. So somebody said, um, let me read some of the comments here. Um, I'm good to go when you are. Okay. Somebody said it took Tom Sowell a whole book to teach us basic economics. Thanks for giving us a brief overview. My pleasure. Hopefully I look anytime, anytime I can even be tangentially compared to Thomas Sowell. It's, it's a, you've made my day. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, listen to this again. has become ascendant really in the United States, as you may have noticed with the attendant, symptoms you described, massive public debt levels, increasing poverty, disorder, crime, filth, and ugliness. Argentina is at the end stage of that. Argentina is now a poor country because of those policies. What advice would you give to Americans having lived it? Que nunca Never embrace the ideas of socialism. Que nunca Never allow yourselves to be seduced by the siren song of social justice. Don't get caught up in that terrible concept. That's where there is a need, there is a right. But that can't happen on its own. We have to be prepared for this and wage a culture war every single day. And we have to be careful because they have no problem with getting inside the state 
and employing Gramsci's techniques, seducing the artists, seducing the culture, seducing the media, or meddling in educational content. You need to be very careful, cut off their funding, and force them into a fair fight. At the same time, we have to raise awareness among the business sector that the masses are necessary. Milton Friedman used to say that the social role of an entrepreneur is to make money, but that's not enough. Part of their investment must include investing in those who defend the ideals of freedom so the socialists can make no further advances. And if they don't do it, they will get into the state and use the state to impose a long-term agenda that will destroy everything it touches. So we need a commitment from all those who create wealth to fight against socialism, to fight against statism, and to understand that if they fail to do so, the socialists will keep coming. Because what's the point? Since they try to leech off others without working, they are tireless in their pursuit. Their leitmotif in life is to live off of others. So they never give up, give up on this. Mechani they never give up, give up on this mechanism to gain control of others' wealth, money, or income. So this battle must be waged unceasingly. We cannot take a day off. Because when we rest, socialism creeps in. Holy crap, that was awesome. This dude's a head of state now. Oh my god! Mentioning things... I, I, I want to be like, has he, he, has he been watching our podcast? Like <laughs> <laughs> he mentioned, as Tina said, he mentioned, he mentioned Gramsci's tactics. Yeah. yeah. Everything we've talked about, everything that, that all these other thinkers have talked about that, that we've discussed. Yeah. The whole concept that we created of the Leviathan and everything. He just mentioned all of that yeah. mm -hmm. on how, how, you know, Gramsci's tactics of infiltrating the culture, infiltrating academia, infiltrating the media, infiltrating the arts. The, the fact that he brought up like the educational indoctrination as well. Well, you and, could and see how, the parallel while he was talking. I, I, while he was talking, I could see in every single aspect that he was talking about, it's already happened here. Well, it's the, already happened and, here. And the part that he talked about too, that was very specific. He's like, you need to understand two things he brought up. He goes, one, he goes, they want to live off the state. So they work every day for that purpose. And when they get into the state, when they start to get control, whether it be over the legislature or the executive branch or the bureaucracy or whatever it is, what do they do? They take your tax dollars and then they use them to fund the institutions or the individuals within those institutions that will advocate them having more power so they can redistribute more. This is one of the things that drives me nuts in the Virginia legislature. When I will look at our budget and I will say, why in the living hell did a Republican legislature just pass a budget which is stealing from our constituents in order to give it to institutions currently completely captured? by a leftist ideology who are then going to educate the children of our constituents to hate their parents. 
And we did it. We allocated the fund. Well, I didn't. I voted against it. But, <laughs> I, but that's but but he, he's he's spot on. It's yeah. like this is this is nuts. We have conservatives. We have liberty minded people, right? That will go to Richmond or go to D.C. or go whatever it is and think, well, well, of course we've got to, well, of course we've got to subsidize higher education, or of course we've got to subsidize elements of Silicon Valley, or of course we've got to subsidize and control public education. Why? To what purpose? To what purpose? Is it just to make sure that everyone's literate? Is it just to make sure that everyone has a good understanding of, of civics? No, that's not it. You know, one of the things that I get tired of hearing people say is, well, you know, the winners write history. I got news for you. You're right. The winners do write history. And in the West, you know who also writes history? The losers. Go look at a university campus right now. I got news for you. The losers are writing the history. And unlike when the winners write the history and we actually view it with a certain degree of healthy skepticism that, hey, they're probably, they're probably writing this from a perspective that, that's gracious toward their own actions and motivations. When the losers write history, we're like, oh, well, gosh, they're the losers. They must have pure motives in everything that they write. I don't think so. They have an agenda just as much as the winners. The difference is, is that in the United States... And in the West in general, we actually appreciate concepts of freedom of inquiry. We actually appreciate concepts of being able to have a dissenting opinion. Here's my question. Look at all the losers that are writing the history that are going into your universities and your public school system right now. Had they won, would they have allowed us to write any portion of the history? I don't think so. Had they won, we would be Argentina. This Currently. is and this is the the point the point that he the point that he he spotted out that was or that he he flushed out that it was so great was this is this is not just something where they get into power and then they have an honest debate with you they get into power and they immediately move your tax dollars into the institutions that will help them increase their power and when we get into power because our our overall theory is that the government should not be doing this. We, we say, well, we're not going to, again, it's not like I get down to Richmond and I say, hey, I'm going to give a bunch of money to gunners of America because I don't believe that's where tax dollars should go. But if the same token of, and you know what, that's right. I don't want to do that. I don't want to use government power to steal your money and give it to the organizations and institutions that I like. I want them to be able to compete. And you saw what he said there. He says, we need to force them into a fair fight. That means our preferred institutions don't get taxpayer dollars because it's not an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars, but neither do yours. And just because an institution previously seemed like a legitimate institution that, that deserved public support does not mean that it deserves public support in perpetuity even after the left has ideologically captured it. Yeah. That's the most pernicious part of this. This is why the Gramscian style of, of cultural Marxism, and yes, I'm going to call it cultural Marxism. I don't give a damn what Wikipedia calls oh, it, it is. saying that it's an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. That's a bunch of nonsense. Go look at the edit history of that article and tell me that, that they don't have an agenda that they're pushing because it used to be, until this was right up in the open, that nobody had a problem with this until people on the right started paying attention to what was going on. Yeah. And then suddenly it became a conspiracy theory. And I love how they throw in anti-Semitic in there too. Last, yeah. last I checked, they're, they're projecting because it's overwhelmingly left-wing people oh, yeah. that are going out there chanting from the river to the sea and plastering paraglide. Yeah. Like, like remember when, when BLM in Chicago put out that picture with the paraglider and was like, oh yeah, we are totally on board with Tomas. Like, yeah. and, and then two weeks later, the media is talking about how Elon Musk is an anti-Semite. So, Basically, they're 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 doing the typical woke project uh, projection thing. But like the most pernicious, I, I was going off on a tangent there. the The point that I was trying to make is the most pernicious thing about this is the left didn't just capture institutions that are, you know, they they, they didn't capture your local Rotary Club. 
although they probably yeah. did that as well. No, they captured institutions that that are considered to be at the core of of American and Western society, at the at the core of Western civilization, and then they've perverted those institutions into pushing an agenda that is decidedly anti-Western, anti-freedom, anti-liberty, anti-free market, anti-individual, pro-statism, yeah. pro-communism, yeah. pro-Marxism. And, and and then they demand that we subsidize these institutions. So the question is, when have Democrats ever taken over? When have leftists ever taken over a state and decided, oh, yeah, we're going to start funding NAGR yeah. or Gun Owners of America yeah. or any, like, pro-life organization? Or, or, or homeschool, you know, Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Yeah. Or homeschool we win, educators. Yeah. We win, and it's, oh, we need to give more money to the universities. Why would we give yeah. money to the opposition? Yeah. And and he he understands this. So so for anybody who who looks at Javier Malay, and and look, I I get being skeptical at this point, mm-hmm. right? How many times have we been promised something and we've been disappointed? Yeah. And and look, the proof is going to be in the pudding, right? He he needs to actually govern. He hasn't taken office yet. He won't take office until December tenth, and everybody has a reason to be skeptical, right? Everybody has a reason to be skeptical. But if he achieves just 25% of what he campaigned on, oh it'd be a game changer. If he achieved 10% of what he campaigned on, it would be par for the course for a typical moderate Republican. Well, and we're going to, we're going to talk too about whether or not we're going to talk to about why don't we have candidates like this in the United States. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to actually provide some insight from the yeah. inside on, on why that is and, and why it would be nice to have some of them. Let's get to some of our uh, super chats here. Zim, the despot says, imagine if the U S were electing statesmen, people who, um, People into politics out of civic duty and not greed instead of uh, politicians. Here, here's what I'll say on that. And and this is something that he talks about a lot here. Part of the problem with uh, um, getting the right people into political office is there has to be the right incentives and motivation to run in the first place. Obviously, there are some people that want to run because they want to protect individual liberty, private property rights, free market economics. And there's other people that see the state as the primary way to solve problems and to help people. So one, one of the most, again, the most pernicious thing is not the politician that gets in there that it's just greedy and mean and evil. That's not the worst person. Or, or I shouldn't say that's not the biggest problem. Those people are usually easier to identify and get rid of. It's the people that go in there and just promise you everything and they have the purest of motivations and they show up at all the soup kitchens and they do this, all this stuff. And then they pass policies, which are horribly detrimental for the people that they may even actually care about, but they are so captured by an ideology that suggests to them that the state is the way to solve problems that they will do it no matter what, no matter what happens. C.S. Lewis talked about this and how it, it, it would be better to be ruled by robber barons than it would be by endless moral busybodies because they will torture you without end because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And that's where we're at right now. We have a lot of people that are not devious, necessarily need, devious, evil, and greedy, but they have bought into a political ideology that is horrific. And, but because they will not accept any evidence to the contrary, because that would be, you know, mean or part of the patriarchy or whatever else they're coming up with nowadays, um, they will continue to do it no matter how bad the results are. And so the, the only solution is you have to give that you have to significantly strip the government of, of as much power and authority as possible so that the only people that are actually running to do it are the ones that are actually there to, to make sure that the government functions within their limited scope effectively and efficiently and to, and to literally look at their position as my job is to make sure that the government does not expand beyond these boundaries. And I can tell you right now, very few people in politics actually think that including, including Republicans. I mean, we've got Republicans who cling like 
really hard to their certain types of subsidies that they all like. Yeah. So, Nick, how many, you, you ran for Congress before, and obviously you're serving in the state legislature here in Virginia. How many Republican politicians do you know? Not, it doesn't need to be like personally, but j- just do you know of? Um, how many Republican politicians do you know know who Antonio Gramsci even is? Maybe. I mean, that, that I, if it's ones that I personally know, maybe 10. Maybe 10. Maybe 10. And we've maybe got, 10. you know, 49 seats in the House now. Wait, maybe uh, ten that are what now? That know who Gramsci even is, and, oh. and know what the whole the, the whole concept. So, is. in a best case scenario, it's like not even. Well, a and, and I and I will t- <laughs> and I will tell you that some of the people I know that do know who Gramsci is, um, and and because I'm I'm talking from the conservative side. I don't know. There may be some people on the left that know exactly <laughs> who he is and I think he's wonderful. But from the conservative side, people that presumably think know who he is and think he's a bad guy. Some of those people are the absolute worst messengers for what we believe imaginable. So it doesn't matter that they have the right information. They're not the ones you want talking about it. All right, let's look at some of the other super chats. Joey said, thank you for the super chat. He goes, hey, Nick, if you have time at the end, can you give your thoughts on House Bill 2 and Senate Bill 2 here in Virginia? Uh, yeah, Joe, if we have time, I will I will definitely do that. I will, I will tell you right up front, they are, <laughs> it, it is once again proof that whenever a Democrat tells you, nobody wants to take your guns, we just want common sense gun control, they are lying to you. It is a lie. They do want to take them, and these bills prove it. So we'll see how far they get. Uh, Trays and Prime, are there books to read on this stuff? What do you recommend? Absolutely. So if you're talking specifically about economics or political philosophy in general, I'm going to give you a few books right off the bat to, to really focus in on. One is The Law by Frederick Bastiat. The other is Economics in One Lesson by uh, Hazlitt. Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And if you're feeling especially froggy, <laughs> right? Um, human action by Ludwig von Mises. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to take that back. Not because Ludwig isn't great. I'm going to pick the road to serfdom by Frederick Hayek. So those four books are the ones that I would recommend you start with the law by, by Frederick Bastiat economics and one lesson by, uh, Henry Hazlitt, basic economics by Thomas Sowell and, um, and, uh, the road to serfdom by Frederick Hayek. And then to add to that, you must also watch the epic rap battle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Canes and Canes Hayek. And Hayek. Yeah. All right, let's get to some more speeches here uh, by me because we've, we've got about five more to go and they just get better. All right, he goes, this man just wiped out a whole field of candidates to be elected Argentina's next president. Um, what is this? Oh, is this just him dancing on stage? It, 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 it's just nine seconds. This, if you want to look at the part where people are like, okay, this is this is more Trumpian, like this is it. So going to play. He goes, leftist sons of bitches are afraid. Freedom goes forward. Hail freedom, damn it. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is the part where you see the uh, what, what people kind of associate with like the Trumpian style of just in your face, you know, saying what we're all thinking, you know, um, the fact <laughs> that he says, be afraid leftist. Yeah, yeah. Be afraid leftists. <laughs> all right. Next one. Okay. Um, we don't need to play the whole thing, but I just want to get across. This he's is also pro-life. He's very pro-life. Which, this is which is. is kind of dip, a, a departure from large L libertarian. Yeah. It's something the libertarians big L in the United libertarians States are cowards on life. Yeah. It's something that the libertarian in the United States might be able to like actually, cause it's like, Hey, if you want to stand by the non-aggression principle is your, your fundamental philosophy. Cause, yeah. Well then, so what does he say here? You oppose abortion. Why? Because as someone who believes in liberalism, and by that he means like classical liberty, I say liberal, libertarian liberal, because in English, the word liberal means something different. So let me say as a libertarian, 
We believe that liberalism entails the unrestricted respect for the lives of others, rooted in a principle of non-aggression. Thank you. And the defense of life, liberty, and property. And if we cleave these ideas of liberty, one of the most fundamental aspects is to defend the life. Philosophically speaking, I am in favor of the right to life. Beyond that, there is a scientific justification to be had. It's the fact that life begins at conception. It's at that very instant that a new being begins to evolve with its own unique DNA. While it's true that women have the right to their own bodies, the child in a womb's mother's womb is not her body. The child is not her body. That makes abortion a murder. Enabled and aggravated by a power imbalance against a child that has no way to defend itself. And beyond that, there is a matter of mathematics. Life is a continuum with two quantum leaps, birth and death. Any interruption in the interim is murder. Wow. Holy crap. Do you see what he did there? He didn't just make, he made the philosophical argument. He made a scientific argument. He made a mathematical argument. Like he, he makes this, this is, this is what differentiates him from a lot of the people running within the United States is they say, they'll say I'm pro-life. Why? Well, because they're running as a Republican and that's the position they're supposed to take. Or they'll say something like, I believe life begins at conception. Okay, why do you believe that? And then they can't actually lead you through any sort of scientific explanation for why they believe it. Or they'll say that philosophically, because I believe in individual liberty, I cannot deprive someone arbitrarily of the right to life at the beginning stages of it. Why? Well, because it, it has, it, it's a form of murder. It's this, a form of This is why we're saying, like, oh how did this gosh, guy get elected? This guy is incredible. Here's the thing. He's not just, he's not like a, a left libertarian, right, or a libertine. We, we've seen a lot of those people, right, that, oh, I'm libertarian, and by that I mean, you know, I. what's the phrase that I used like a month or two ago? Okay, wait, real quick. I'm going to address this right now because Yeska said he is now going to be allowed to do anything he has um, a promise he was just allowed to win because he is going to play ball with BlackRock. Please don't let him deceive you. He, oh, earlier she says... Um, he is not a libertarian. He is friends with BlackRock, and he wants to dollarize Argentina, and very conveniently he was allowed to win so that they will make okay. the dollar a little bit more stronger. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now. The reason why he's going to dollarize is because you can't move. He, he's not going to be able to move the Argentinian currency into a gold-backed currency tomorrow. And so he's trying to suck the inflation out of the economy as soon as he possibly can. And, and one, of the, one of the easiest ways to do that is by dollarizing it. And we know this because Zimbabwe did it. And it was the only thing that they could actually do to stop rampant inflation. So again, this is the part where I, I am almost... And like maybe I, they like 3,000% inflation. I am, in never, I am never someone monetary. that goes... I am never someone that goes with the, you know, the PSYOP you know, approach first. I don't think that's the easiest explanation for most things, but I would not be surprised at all if the, if the, and I'm not saying that you're doing this. I'm, I'm, I understand that you believe that this is a real problem. I understand that dollarizing the, the economy is not the best way to do it, but it is the quickest way to sap most of the inflation out of an economy that's currently representing hundred percent inflation, right? That, that's just a fact. 
But anybody that's saying, oh, this guy's just going to play, play ball with BlackRock, we will see. We will see. That is a possibility. I don't think it's highly likely. This whole idea, like, play, he was allowed to win? Are you kidding me? We're going to go into how he actually won this race. And I don't see how anybody comes to the conclusion that he was allowed to win because WEF and BlackRock secretly really want this guy in power. They threw the kitchen sink at him. Oh, my God. The leftists in Argentina did we, we everything are, we they are could so to beat We are so determined. Him. We are so determined to believe there, there's an incentive structure within libertarian circles to believe that anybody who believes the things that we believe that happens to get into a position of power must be a sellout. They have to be. It is the philosophy of, per, of perpetual defeat. The only true libertarians are the ones that never win. That's how you know they're true libertarians. The moment they win, they're clearly a fraud. Yeah. No, he will be a fraud if he gets in there and actually does the opposite of what he said. But until then, holy hell, can we for at least once have a little bit of hope that we might have racked up a win on this one? So Emiliano, who who actually lives in Argentina and I believe is a member of our circle chat, has been mentioning a few things that I, I want to read off because they're kind of funny. And um, Emiliano says that... Uh, First off, that there's going to be some riots in Buenos Aires once he takes power because the leftist unions are going to are immediately going to take to the streets and start protesting. <laughs> Second off, that the inflation rate in Argentina is actually 150 percent and it keeps going higher. Yeah, it's not even 100 percent anymore. It's 150 percent. And then third off, that that apparently they've been memeing in Argentina that Alberto Fernandez, who's the current president, the outgoing president, is actually secretly a libertarian oh, because he was doing such a terrible job running the country that. <laughs> That he allowed Malay, that he allowed Malay to win. So like, like that's kind of the inverse mentality that that we have been so betrayed, yeah, and so beaten up in in the West, in the U.S., in Europe. How many times have have we had a Republican get elected or a conservative get elected? I I think it's somebody I cannot remember who who said it once, but somebody once said that the greatest advancements of progressivism and socialism over the last hundred years have come about through conservative governments. Think about yeah. the UK as a good example. We did a podcast about a year ago yeah. on the UK versus um, Conservative Party versus the Canadian Conservative Party. The UK Conservative Party is in power. They've been in power since 2010. They're the ones that imposed, let's be honest, wokeism on the country. Yeah. They, they've, they've destroyed that country. Yeah. And so naturally, people in the West, people in Europe, people in the United States, they see these like center-right governments come to power and they yeah. betray everything that we stand for as conservatives, everything we stand for as libertarians, everything we stand for as, as people on the right. And naturally, we become skeptical now because we've been burned too many times. And I but get that. But here's the thing. Yeah. A guy talking about Gramsci, a, a, a guy talking about the Cantillon effect, a guy endorsing a life at conception stance publicly before the election. That was before the election yeah. campaigning on that. I, I have a really hard time. Look, he might disappoint. He might not yeah. achieve everything he wants. That's the way that politics works. We're used to that. Yeah. But I, I, I have a really hard time not believing that he's the real deal. Does that mean that he will deliver and everything? Probably not. You probably won't be able to. There's, there's legal oppositions. Him. You can't. You don't get elected dictator of Argentina. The idea right? that he's all just totally scripted and he's just a patsy, it that's crazy. Well, if it if it is if it is this was the greatest black op that BlackRock and the WF and everybody else you know whatever ever conducted. And and the point that I'm trying to get across is that if you really believe this guy is bad, he's not going to deliver on it. Fine, I, I understand that. But here's what I will tell you: Who in the hell were you running that was better? 
Like, can you point to any other, can you point to any other elected official anywhere in the world right now, any other chief executive that you would say, yeah, better than that guy with respect to liberty philosophy and free market economics? Because I sure as hell can't. And I don't just focus on U.S. elections. But this is the problem that we get into every single time. It's like, well, he said this one thing I don't like, so he's a fraud. This is why we will always lose. We, like, we demand that everybody this is why we'll always lose. You, you, you either be you either be absolutely one hundred percent pure and agree with me on everything, or I'm not going to support you because I'd rather have I'd rather have a socialist that I can scream at than an imperfect libertarian I could work with. A perfect example of this would be like. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get this worked up about it, but I am so. If we had people do this to Nick when when he was running for Congress. Nick would explain things very similarly to this. He just very methodically, beautifully explained. And people would be like, he's just too polished. I don't trust him. Or, or he just, he says all the right things. I don't trust that. And, and then they, they'll, they'd go and support somebody else who. Didn't I know mean, how to say any of the things because he didn't know what he was doing. Right. All right. Let's, let's go ahead and look at, um, let's go and look at some more of these speeches. It's been a fun episode. I'm just, I'm, I'm fired up. All right. Let's go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your comment though. I appreciate you coming and, and sharing your perspective. I'm not trying to trash you. All right, go ahead. Socialism is always and everywhere a violent, murderous, and impoverishing phenomenon. Those are the characteristics of socialism. That's it. That was it. He's oh my just gosh. like me. Yeah. Well, and, and okay. So for anybody that's looking at this, that is saying, well, I don't think Norway is, Norway is not socialist. Denmark, not socialist. Sweden, not socialist. Finland, not socialist. Socialism is, right? The abolition of the private uh, or the uh, private ownership of the means of production. That's what socialism is for people that will immediately come in. Well, no, that's communism. No, go look it up. By the way, Marx used socialism and communism practically interchangeably. It was it was Lenin that popularized this idea that socialism was the step before you got to communism. Well, I got a question. If social, let's assume that's true for a second. If socialism is the step before you get to communism, why would you want that? Since it's just a step to communism. Well, but, public but the, ownership is just government ownership because yes. everything the public owns is owned by the government. Yeah, well, and this is this is where he says always, everywhere, a violent, murderous, and impoverishing phenomenon. And and, and again, for every, here's what's going to happen. You're going to point to all the examples of this. You're going to point to the USSR. You're going to point to Cuba. You're going to point to um, a Maoist China. You're going to point to you know where it's been tried in Argentina. You're going to point to Venezuela. And you know what they're all going to say? That wasn't real socialism. Well, gosh, well, gosh, dang, if the fake version of it kills so many people and impoverishes so many people, I'd be horrified to think what the real version of it does, because it, you're not going to convince me that Mao wasn't really trying to implement socialism. Lenin wasn't really trying to implement socialism. Well, that's because when you when you need everybody to have buy in for a system of government, which is the socialism, you have to have pretty much a hundred percent buy-in. And if you don't have that, you just start exterminating people, which is why they have such high body counts. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and look at another one. Uh, this one real quick. Um, this one, he's talking about uh, societies infected with socialism. Hamilton, could you scroll up just oh. a little bit? Oh my gosh. This go. Oh my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to let him speak and I'll, I'll read off what he's saying. And if we need to, we'll go back and look at some of it because this is, again, there's some Trump moments in there where he does not mince words. <laughs> this is why people compare him to Trump, yeah, even yeah. though I think he's better than Trump actually. Yeah. All right, here we go. I think that the big problem in Argentina is a cultural problem. 
There, this is a society infected by socialism. And what we need to achieve is to remove socialism from people's minds. And the main promoter of these ideas are the politicians. I suggest you take a look at what uh, Graciela Camanos, she is supposed to be one of the best leaders in Argentina. Do you know who they are against? Against the libertarians, because we libertarians are the only ones who dare to confront the politicians and tell them that they are not the solution, that they are the problem. The politicians are a sort of sociopaths who want to make us believe that we are mentally invaded and invalid in every sense because we cannot live without them. But in reality, those who cannot live without us are them. In other words, if the country were divided between those who produce on one side and the effing politicians, the syndicalists, this whole bunch of parasites, they would sink and die. <laughs> Let's separate Argentina into northern Argentina and southern Argentina. You know, those who are willing to work will go to the poorest part of the country. We'll leave, you know, for them, even if they end up with everything, these rats will sink because they're useless. On the other hand, those of us who produce and know how to make a living will thrive. We are decent people, hardworking people, and we don't advocate for envy, hatred, theft, or unequal treatment under the law. The abomination of social justice is the most unjust thing that exists because it means stealing the fruits of someone's labor and giving them to others just because I feel like it. And in, the, in that whole process, not only did they destroy the economy, they impoverished people. From 1970 to now, the size of the state tripled and the number of poor people multiplied by six. And you know who the only ones who really prospered? The politicians. So you know what? If you want to stay in this country, you have to identify the enemy, and the enemy is the politicians. We have to go after the politicians. They are our enemies. They are the ones dragging us into poverty. They are the ones who prospered with this whole idea of social justice and income redistribution. The real income redistribution was from what we produced to the political parasites. The libertarianism was born to free us from the oppressive rulers. Let's say, okay, we'll go ahead and stop right there because it's he's based because the part I really want to focus on right here, <laughs> the part I really want to focus on that was amazing is that he, he was basically breaking Argentina down into the kind of the most prosperous areas, the trade zones, the ports, the big cities and whatnot. He goes, he goes, let's, let's separate Argentina into two countries. Everyone who wants to work and believes what we do, we'll go to the South and we'll leave them with all the wealth. And, and with, within a short period of time, they'll sink and we'll prosper. And how many people are feeling that in the United States right now with this whole idea of, no, we need to, we need to ram home whatever we believe onto your kids. We need to redistribute what you make and we need to give it to the people that are going to vote for us. And that's going to give us genuine prosperity. And you're looking at them going everywhere you govern. The only reason why there's any money coming into San Francisco or New York City is because you have a financial sector and you have a port or you have a tech sector and a port. It's not because of the actual policies that you've implemented. And we know that to be true because you look at what's happened in these various areas with homelessness. Is there greater income inequality in New York City or rural areas? Right? If, if that's what they really want to hold up is to be in the, the thing that's devastating the country. They're the ones creating this sort of, these sort of perverse economic incentive, uh, incentives, which steals from people the more they work and the more they produce and gives to the people the harder those people vote for progressives. And it is. It is it is fundamentally unjust and it is fundamentally violent because the only way it can actually proceed is if politicians can pass laws and then rely on law enforcement and the IRS and every other agency to go and tell people, I'm confiscating from you, I'm taking it from you, 
And I'm not going to put it toward the roads. I'm not going to put it toward those legitimate functions of government. No, no. I'm going to give it to my political allies at your expense. And the more of your money I give to them, the more power I get to take more of your money. And that's supposed to be a just system. Right. That's a system which produces poverty inevitably because you have disincentivized productivity and you have incentivized sitting around and voting for politicians that will steal from other people in order to give it to you. And that's the point he's making. If you really think that system is preferable, if you really think that all this capitalism is evil and all the industrialists and all the business, they're the evil ones. Okay, great. Then let's deprive you of all those evil people. Let's put them in a different part of the country. You can give us the part of the country with no resources. And then you guys, the ones that want to live off of what people are producing, you guys get your own part of the country. We'll give you the rich parts. And let's see how long that plays out. Emiliano keeps on saying that he sounds like he's saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think he's saying exactly the opposite. He is. I think he's saying, I'm coming from outside of the government and I'm going to rip apart this government <laughs> so that they can no longer continue to tax and regulate you and do everything that they're doing to yeah. you. Um, the whole idea of what Reagan was talking about when he said um, the most terrifying words in the English language are, you know, I, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. The reason he said that is because, well, let, let's put it this way. If the IRS comes and knocks on your door and they're saying, I'm from the, that, that's an example of I'm from the government, I'm here to help, you know, help you sift through your money so we can find out how much is ours. Or we're going to come and inspect your facility and make sure that it's up to a certain, you know, arbitrary standard. And yeah. that's your government agency that's there to help. We're talking about government overreach when we talk yeah. about I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Not people that want to come in and rip apart this apparatus that has been oppressing people. That It's literally the opposite. Yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and look. This is a, this is a video I did on, on woke ideology um, along with socialism. This is such a good clip. The madness of stupid political hang on, correctness. Hang on, hang on. So you you got to start over again. You got to uh, read that first. You've got to read that first. Oh, one. okay, okay. Here we go. All right, all right. What madness are we living in? The madness of stupid political correctness, where basically it's like saying, oh, if you don't recite cool socialism or if you are not woke, then you are violent. You are a danger to democracy. Come on, guys. Let's continue with this nonsense. Instead of being ranked 140 world ranking, we're going to be the largest shanty town in the world. <laughs> when he said ranked 140, he's referring to yeah, GDP per overall yeah. GDP per capita. Yeah, no, it's yeah. Let's go to the next one. We got a couple more because if you more. don't say cool socialism yeah. or if you're not, well, I love that. This is this. Okay, this one reminds me of a Howard Dean moment when he was. You remember the Howard Dean? Yeah, like, yeah. He screamed and go it and tanked his whole thing. Except yeah, but it, it didn't, didn't take, take it. his. This is one where. He, <laughs> Look at this. Yeah, he's, he's, he's getting the crowd worked up. <laughs> this is like Trump's dance. Hamilton, the like, other one's still playing. Yeah, this is extra. What was the... Uh, Hamilton, the other, the other clip is still playing. Yeah, yeah. The, so there was no audio really on that. It's just it for, for our audio listeners, he is literally skipping across the stage, flailing his arms around, <laughs> you know, he kind of doing sort of like the Mick Jagger thing, if you need like a visual. Well, there's there's a whole audience there, like, you know, yeah. amped up. It's like a rally. Oh, what's, yeah, they're what's the all next excited. clip? Because the next clip, I think, was the night of the election. This yeah. is the celebrations in downtown Buenos Aires. This is a celebration. You're going to so. want to turn the volume up for this. Yeah, oh man, this is oh like my gosh. packed. Holy crud. Yeah. 
Yeah, how many thousands of people thousands. were estimated oh, there? Thousands no, that's, of people. That's, like, that's tens of thousands, maybe hundreds. All right, go, uh, no, probably not hundreds of thousands, definitely tens. Um, go up to the next uh, clip here. Okay, this, this is, I've saved the best for last, ladies and gentlemen. All right, so this is, <laughs> he, had this, he had this video that went viral, and it's a, it's a whiteboard, and he's basically explaining all of these government agencies and ministries and everything else that exist and take your tax dollars and redistribute them and prop up the, the bureaucracy. And, and he was basically being asked you know, what, what he would do about them. So let's go ahead and hit play on this. Ministry of Sports and Tourism, gone. <laughs> Ministry of Culture, out. <laughs> Ministry of the Environment and Sustainable Development, out. Ministry of Women's Genders and Diversity, out. Ministry of Public Works, out. <laughs> Even if you resist. <laughs> Ministry of Science, Technology, and Innovation, out. Ministry of Labor, Employment, out. Ministry of Education, Indoctrination, out. Ministry of Transport, out. Ministry of Health, out. Ministry of Social Development, out. The thievery of politics is over. Long live damn liberty. <laughs> no, some people are probably looking at that going like, you're going to get rid of the Ministry of Health? Can, can we explain something real quick? The, the Ministry of Health within a particular country does not create doctors and hospitals. Right, those things are, are are perfectly capable of existing apart from a government agency attempting to mandate or regulate or tax the crap out of it. Right, same thing with like, why do we need a federal department of education? The federal, the, the department of education didn't exist in the United States before what 1979. Did we not have any schools before that? The the point that he's making with all of this is that these agencies exist and they have some sort of title which make people believe that they're essential to the things in the title. Well, gosh, if you don't have a ministry of transportation, I guess there would not be any roads. If you don't have a ministry of health, I guess there'll be no hospitals. If you don't have a ministry of, you know, like Department of Energy, you know what the goal of the Department of Energy is in the United States? To end our, um, what was it? It was to end our dependence on, on foreign oil. The Department of Energy is one of the biggest things standing in the way of domestic oil production and exploration. So the point that he's making is just because you put a nice title on something doesn't mean that agency is actually achieving positive ends toward whatever it was created for. What you can guarantee it's doing is gobbling up tax dollars and then using it to give either to bureaucracies or to the right, like nonprofits or the industries which cozy up to government. That's one of the primary things that happens in all of these, these organizations and institutions overseas and in the United States. Go look at who they hand grants out to. It's their buddies. And oh, by the way, a lot of these organizations which win these contracts in order to provide goods and services, especially when it's on the nonprofit side, you should see how they actually spend their money. And a lot of these bureaucracies, it, they... They establish regulations that aren't haven't even been signed into law, but they have been granted this power to be able to create regulations. And you see this all the time with some of our like Department of uh, Nick. What's the one here? VDAX is it? Yeah, VDAX. Well, VDAX. And then yeah. there's the federal one that's like the. Uh, we have the Food and Drug Administration. EPA, you also it's like have. a. 
anyway. have the Environmental Protection Agency, you have the Food and Drug Administration, you have so the Department of Agriculture. Basically what happens is, you know, people want to build something, they want to build no, their business, EPA. do whatever, and they come in and they stop them for whatever reason. And they just create all of these barriers to entrepreneurship. And that is what it takes to to make the economy better is to help let people let people do business. But Nick and Tina, what would Argentina do without the Ministry of Women, Genders, and Diversity? <laughs> I guess all the women will go away. Yeah, no more know. no more women exist in Argentina now because we got rid of a ministry well, that they don't had even women know in the what title. A woman is. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, you sexist bigot. Wait, transphobe. I can't. What? I can't forget whatever phobic. That's what you are. Okay. I love how he also said Ministry of Education, Indoctrination, Indoctrination of Women. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This is awesome. All right. So, now, But, again, I want to point this out. For anybody that's looking at this going, well, doesn't this seem a little bit extreme? No. Here, here's what I believe is extreme. I believe it is extreme. And I'm going to use a, an example in the United States. And, and, I, and I did this once with the Department of Education. Um. The Department of Education has, oh gosh, what was it? Like, a, I think it was $70 billion budget. It's, it's probably more now, but at the time that I was talking about this, I think it was, I think it was, I think it was that much, but I, I don't quote me on that directly. Um, it, here's my question. The federal government ripped that money out of localities, out of states, and then ran it through a massive federal bureaucracy right? That's, that's buildings, that's bureaucratic positions, that's papers, that's desks, that's lamps in the office buildings. That's just people know, proper, with really high salaries. property they have to buy. It's, it's highly paid, you know, uh, political appointees. They did all of that. Have, I'm sorry, has education improved as a result? Like, are, are we all looking at the status of, of education within the United States because of the department of education and thinking to ourselves, wow, what th this yeah. is so much better than the money actually staying in the localities or the States or the pockets of the people that want to educate their children. So much better that we have this massive federal bureaucracy making these decisions. Well, and then they'll and give yet, it back with strings attached. Yeah. They, and then they hand it to you with strings attached. And again, they, they give beneficial treatment toward the sort of organizations or nonprofits or whatever that implement the policies they want you to implement. They hold the money back from you unless you do what they want. Right. Am I supposed to look at that and say, oh, gosh, wow, this is so wonderful for education. Well, if I'm supposed to, I'm not going to because I don't believe it. And I'm and I'm so tired of people manipulating voters into believing, oh, my gosh, this person hates education. Why? Because they don't want a massive federal bureaucracy ripping money from your local communities in order to spend it on things that federal bureaucrats think are more important for your child's education. Wait, wait, what? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. We're not supposed to explain it that way. They want to cut education funding. Like this is the sort of crap that we, we, this is the sort of garbage that we live in. And this guy has not just got up and said like what American politicians say, which is, well, the department of education, there, there's no place in the constitution for a department of education. Okay, great. That, that is, a, that is a great argument exemplifying why the founders didn't believe we needed a department of education of the federal government, but it doesn't actually address the concerns that voters have with respect to the quality of education. So how about you do a better job of explaining how their local schools are worse off because this federal department exists and then showing the very real evidence of why that's true. Well, the position a lot of these people take is that they shouldn't have to explain it because it just should stand on its own without the need to explain any of this. But no. the problem is, is everything does need to be explained no, Otherwise, well, it'll be explained by somebody else. Well, in the and wrong I, way. I hear this all the time in Paul. Well, if you're explaining, you're losing. I'm like, you know what? I've heard the same consultants say that crap time and again. And you know what their candidates do? Lose. lose. Because it's there's a difference between explaining something you did that was wrong or the stupid 
and explaining what you believe in terms that are actually relevant to the people that you're speaking to. And, and to not actually take the time to understand why these, things, why these things are important on a philosophical level, on a scientific level, on a mathematical level, on a social level, right? And then to wrap that all up into an explanation, which is actually relevant to the person that you're attempting to convince of what you believe. No, instead, what we get is a bunch of politicians where their consultants tell them, nobody's going to understand this. You just need to stick to these talking points. Yep. And it's so damn frustrating. Yeah, we need to do 57 polls to see what's going to win with because, the people. Because even, even, if, even if it wins you something in the short term, it always loses in the long run because now people are voting for things, believing that, oh, I vote for you and you give me jobs, right? Instead of actually understanding how jobs are really created. Yeah, politicians do not create jobs. All politicians have the ability to do is, is squash job growth. All they have to do in order to, you know, promote more job growth is to step back and get their freaking hands off of it. There's, there's actually one more clip that yeah. I really want to play of him that is translated in English that okay. I sent Hamilton because um, Malay actually kind of talks about this a little bit. And then once we're done with that clip, we can actually get into, okay, so so how did he win and why did he win? Because yeah. we've got the map of the election results and everything. There's some really interesting stuff there. Yeah. I know we've been at this. I know we've been at this for about an hour and a half now. We got two other points that we really want to hit on. One is how did he win this election and where did he win? Because trust me, I want to tell you this, you're going to be shocked. You're going, you're going to be shocked at where he won. And then the second part that we're going to get into is why why does this seem impossible within the United States? And again, I can I can talk about this from very personal experience. It's very frustrating that it feels like this is impossible in the U.S. At least on the on the state level, at least in Virginia, it seems impossible. And so we're gonna we're gonna explain why some of that. We're is. not gonna play this entire thing, although I do highly recommend that that yeah, anybody who wants to watch clip. it watch it. But it's really like the first minute or two that okay. that there, there's there's a lot of value in there. All right. Hamilton, you could skip to probably about like 20, 30 seconds in if you want. You're going to want to turn the volume up, though. <laughs> how is it going to work in practice, and how will you get the Congress approval? I think there's a previous discussion about dollarization. Actually, strictly speaking, is to get rid of the central bank. The dollarization is an instrumental issue at the end of the day. There are four argumentative axes. One has to do with a moral issue, which is that stealing is wrong. And seniorage is nothing more or less than a swindle by politicians against good people. Therefore, let's say, if we consider that stealing is wrong, one of the greatest thieves in the history of mankind is the central bank. The second point has to do with a technical issue, because in the Argentine case, it is more evident when a product has no demand, its price is zero. So if the local currency has no demand and its price should be zero, the equilibrium real balances are zero. Whatever amount of money a central bank wishes to impose, the counterpoint is that the price level is infinite. Demand and its price should be zero. Equilibrium real balances are zero. Whatever amount of money a central bank wants to impose, the flip side is that the price level has infinity. So, in other words, it is a naturally inflationary economy. Then there are instrumental issues related with the different models of dollarization. There is probably the most iconic proposal, which is the proposal of Emilio Ocampo and Nikolos Kajanovsky, and we have different versions to dollarize. So it's not a technical problem. There's also a political dimension that has to do with the fact that Argentine politicians, by means of seniorage, steal five points of the GDP from the Argentine people. 
Probably that's the greatest resistance of those thieves who want to keep stealing from the good Argentines. That is the general framework. Then there are issues which can be discussed in terms of the implementation. Let's pause it right there. He's, he's, and he's, getting, he's getting pretty technical, <laughs> and it's good stuff. But yeah. the, the thing that I love is that, he again, again, he goes, part of the issue with the central bank is that the central bank provides a mechanism where politicians can steal from people without raising their taxes. Yeah, it's and, a hidden tax. It is a hidden tax. And, and again, what do I mean by that? If the, if the central bank... Right. And then in our case, the Federal Reserve, in coordination with the Treasury, is permitted to print a bunch of money. Right. The, the Cantillon effect is that because the politicians get that money first, they get the full value of the dollar once they spend it. But once they spend it on those goods, on those services, whatever it is, all of a sudden the prices start to go up. Right. And then you on the other end of it, by the time you are getting your paycheck or by the time you're even getting a small raise or whatever else it is, it cannot buy anywhere near the same amount of goods and services that the politicians got when they spent it before they started the inflation. Right. Because they spent it based on what it, what money was worth before they spent it. Yeah. Inflation is not inflation is not something for which there is an immediate impact. Right. It takes time for the market to realize that, oh, my gosh, there, there's. There's all these new resources that are, there's all these new dollars that are competing for scarce resources. And it's not as if we've created more resources to go around. It's the same amount of resources or, or in some cases even fewer, but the politicians got the full value. So they basically got to buy all those resources at a discount and who makes up the difference? You do. And that's why they don't want to get rid of a central bank. That's why they don't want to get rid of the Federal Reserve. It gives them a secret mechanism to tax the living crap out of you without actually getting out there and voting to raise taxes because that will cost them an election. But if all of a sudden inflation is just happening and Elizabeth Warren gets out there and blames greedy businesses on increased profits. Big sandwich. Gee, why, why Elizabeth? Why do they have that additional money in their bank accounts right now? It's just, it is, it is. I'm done believing that they're ignorant. I, I take that back. AOC is ignorant. She has no idea how this works and she doesn't really care because it's not important to her re-election. Elizabeth Warren's not ignorant. She's a liar. She she's she's malignant. Now are pol are politicians always the ones spending the money first or are they giving that money to banks as well? Even it's a when symbiotic they, relationship. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's it's one it's one of the most nefarious things about the whole central banking system is that it allows for a mechanism where politicians have an inordinate amount of control over the banks, but then it's also symbiotic in the sense that when banks make really stupid decisions and stupid investments, instead of their investors having to, and again, I know that sucks when people invest in a bank and the bank does you know stupid things and it, and it goes under, but it it is not a good incentive structure to set up to where politicians now take your money and give it to that bank in order to help those investors. Right. And, they and made many, a bad investment and now you pay for it. Yes. Remember what happened with Silicon Valley bank earlier this year in March Yeah. when um, Silicon Valley bank collapsed and the same thing happened by the way, in 2020 during the height of the COVID uh, panic in, in March and April, 2020, what you saw was is that the central bank, the Federal Reserve was no longer the lender of last resort. For a brief period, the, the Federal Reserve did something unprecedented in the history of central banking. It was the buyer yeah. of last resort. The Federal Reserve went out there and started buying corporate bonds and like mortgage-backed treasury, or, um, um, uh, um, mortgage-backed securities, like on the open market in order to prop up asset prices when everything was collapsing in March 2020, which is also why you saw ultimately 
it, it, everything reverted very quickly. At the same time that the entire country was being shut down, physically shut down. We all lived through it. We all remember yeah. it. Nobody could go to work. Nobody could go anywhere. The economy ground to a halt. At the same time that there was no productivity in the real world, what did you see? You saw the stock market reach all-time highs. Yeah, that is that is impossible apart from At inflation. the same time that we briefly had 25% unemployment. And the reason that you saw asset prices so disconnected from the real productivity of the economy was because the central bank was literally purchasing assets. It wasn't like they were lending money. Yeah. It wasn't like that they were just doing quantitative easing to get to Congress. They were doing all of that, of course. They were doing that on overdrive. But they were doing something unprecedented where they were literally going into the open open market explicitly corporate bonds and mortgage-backed securities and buying those to prop up the, the price of the asset. So you want to talk about redistribution of wealth. Well, guess who that supports? That supports the people who already own the assets that were collapsing. Yeah. People who already were wealthy, people who already were, and many of them were already politically connected as well. This is what Malay is talking about in this interview and so many other ones. But the, the reason I bring all this up is because imagine... Imagine a politician in the United States saying any of this stuff. It just it just doesn't happen. Well, no. and the ones that do don't make it into higher office because I, I hate to say it, but I mean our own within our own parties, we get torn apart and lied about and everything else and people believe it. Mm -hmm. That's 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 the most frustrating thing is how gullible the voters can can be. Um, if a good slick piece of mail is sent and boy, they just believe it now, now they're going to be like, oh, well, I heard this and I, it's, it's absolutely absurd to me. But yeah. the problem is, is it costs a lot of money to get your message out there. And if somebody else has a lot more money and the left always has more money. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit later because that's, that's going to go in the last thing that we're talking about. Let's, mm -hmm. let's move on to the election results. And the reason why I want everyone to understand this is because when, when I looked at this, if, if, if this election were being held in the United States, what would we all expect? Okay. The South with, with maybe certain exceptions, the Midwest, that's going to the Republican kind of like, obviously well, you mean that you mean the West, the Midwest is all the battleground States, well, like no, Pennsylvania, well, let, Michigan. Me, let me, let me, let me get through this. We, we would all assume Right, that the South, with the exception of Virginia, and then you'd have you'd have some battles in Georgia and North Carolina, but Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, Kentucky, Oklahoma. We're not confused where, where they're going on this, right? We're we're less and less confused even with Florida anymore. Then you'd look at the you'd look at places like um, Idaho, Wyoming, Nebraska, Iowa. Iowa sometimes is a little bit more. Um, Ohio is 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 going Republican almost certainly. And then you're gonna have battleground states in in the northern portions of the Midwest with Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Michigan tends to lean blue. New England is blue, right? And the West Coast is blue, right? That's that's what we would anticipate. But then if you want to, if you went into those individual states, here's what you'd find. The rural areas in California are pretty red and the urban areas in California are very blue. If you went into Florida, what would you find? The urban areas tend to be more blue, although some some changes are taking place there, tend to be more blue. Miami's kind of a special consideration because of the Cuban population. And the rural areas would be red, right? This this is what we would expect to see pretty much without fail within the United States. Now, we, we showed you once what happened in South Korea and how there was something very, very interesting take place in this. The first person I ever saw actually lay this out as a theory and articulate it was Christian. 
And he, and he called it the donut theory. And, and the reason why I say it was the first person is because he was talking to me about this, what was it, three years ago? Four years it ago? It was like, it was around 2020 when I it saw was, the yeah. election results so, from that. So almost four years ago, Christian was talking about this effect and thought it was very interesting. So let's go ahead and look at the Argentina. Um, this is this is from Bloomberg.com. This was the Argentina elections live results. Now, the overall victory, I also want to illustrate something here. The overall, overall victory is... Um, Javier won with 55% of the vote, 55% of the popular vote. That That is over a 10% victory um, over his connect. I am trying to think of the last time that we have had a victory that lopsided. 1988. Was it probably. 88? I think it was. I think it was probably 88 where you had a, a vote that lopsided. Don't Again, we can all look that up just to make sure, but 88. And that was... That was when Reagan, that was when HW just trounced Dukakis. Dukakis won like, I think three States like Minnesota, Massachusetts, DC, like not even a state, but, um, it's actually higher. This is, so if if, you actually have to go back to 84, because I just looked it up in 88, HW won 53 to 45. Wow. So to give you an idea, this is the equivalent of Reagan versus Mondale, which was, I think the second biggest blowout in American political history. Right. That, that's how overwhelming this victory was. He did not squeak by and, and win by a couple of votes. Like they weren't sitting there free, you know, frantically counting votes on election night to try to figure. By the way, they used paper ballots in the Argentina election. They hand counted. They hand counted and they knew the same day who the president was. Now, again, Argentina is smaller than the United States. All right. But in Virginia, we, we had an election um, and well, excuse me. Um, in places like Arizona, Arizona is far smaller than Argentina, and they didn't have their results for, for what? Days, for days. days. All with electronic voting. And by the way, the only reason why electronic voting is a thing is ostensibly to make it easier to manage the process and get results back faster. That's why. It's supposed to be easier and get your results faster. And yet, we have an entire country in South America that just did hand ballot, like paper ballots only. Because the judge threw out their system, and lo and behold, they got the results. Nobody is is questioning the integrity of the election. They got they the got results so quickly that Massa, the Peronist <laughs> candidate, Sergio Massa, who was the, the minister of the economy that was overseeing yeah. 140% inflation, he conceded within an hour of the polls closing. Holy wow. Crap. <laughs> All right. So let's look at So overall, again, we're trying to show you. He didn't just win. He won huge. Scroll down. Not only did he win huge. Um, Malay got the highest vote count of any candidate in Argentine presidential history. So Raw let, vote count. So let's go. Let's go look at this. This is where it starts to get crazy. All right, Christian, I'm, you you kind of take over this part because you've been doing the research on this. This is your baby. Okay, so I'm gonna. Um, we're looking at for, in, for those on the audio. We're looking at a map of Argentina right now, and and we're kind of breaking it down between the urban areas and the rural areas. Okay, so um, yeah, when you look at this map. Hamilton, if you hover over any of these provinces, these are all the the different administrative uh, divisions within the country. And um, what you'll see is in most of the rural parts of the country, Malay won in a landslide, right? So like when you look at this province, which is right on the, um, the, the, um, in Spanish, it translates to um, Silver River, the Rio de la Plata. Um, This is basically the main um, natural artery 
that that connects Argentina to the rest of the interior of South uh, South America. He won 61% in this province, right? 6138. You can hover over any of these. Um in this middle province here, he got his highest vote total anywhere, I believe. He won over 74%. This is a conservative stronghold, which is very funny because the province just to the north is filled with peronists. <laughs> this is this must be where they were just I think they invented inflation in this province. Um <laughs> Yeah, where he lost 68-31. But with the exception of some of these northern um, uh, northern parts of the country, the rest of the country was overwhelmingly overwhelmingly voted for um, for Malay. You could actually go to the southern part in Patagonia, um, where, again, Malay won pretty handily, right? But what you see is, here's the thing. About a third of Argentina's population lives in the Buenos Aires metropolitan region. Buenos Aires is the capital. It's the largest city. Buenos Aires is a massive city. It's like you have nine million voters in in Buenos Aires. Voters, yeah, almost right? ten million voters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Population wise, Buenos Aires is basically New 17, York. Seventeen million five hundred sixty nine thousand. Yeah. So and the leftists barely won. And that's that. the that that's the the province around the capital city. Yeah. So so the metro area. I mean, you're talking like New York City, Los Angeles. It's one of the largest cities in the world. And um, Buenos Aires is also a very beautiful city. My aunt's been there. I've always wanted to go visit. Anyway, so unfortunately for Malay, he lost the province of Buenos Aires, but that's actually not terribly surprising. And the reason why is if you scroll down, Hamilton, what you'll find is here's the Buenos Aires metro area, which is an inclusion of the province and the capital city. Now, the capital city is separate from the province. The capital yeah. city is an autonomous city. They had a constitutional amendment, I think, in 1994 that separated it from the rest of the province. And so the vote totals in Buenos Aires itself, if you actually scroll back up just real quick, I just want to hover over this to give you an idea. In the province around the capital, Malay barely lost. He lost 50 to 49. In the city itself, this is the capital of the country, Hover over the uh, purple dot just above Buenos Aires, Hamilton, autonomous city of Buenos Aires. Oh he my won, gosh. He won the capital city, downtown Buenos Aires. He won 57 to 42. Can you imagine, can you imagine a Republican candidate saying the things that, that Millel did and winning Washington, D.C. with 57% of the vote? Like to give you an idea, the again, biggest one of the biggest blowouts in American political history ever was Ronald Reagan against Walter Mondale. The only thing Walter Mondale won was, I believe, Minnesota, which was his home state, and Washington, DC. That Washington, DC always goes far left. Every major But city can you goes. imagine? Can you they, he won he didn't just win it by a little. So what is but, the reason? But here's the crazy part. He won the city, he lost the suburbs. Yeah, so what if is you the scroll reason down, for that? Yes, we're, we're going to get to that, Tina. Hamilton, if you scroll down, here's the detailed map of the metropolitan area. So you can see the boundary, the city limits of the autonomous city of Buenos Aires, and then everything else is the suburbs of what makes up the province of Buenos Aires, which is separate from the capital. What you see is, Hamilton, just hover over any of these purple circles in the city in downtown Buenos Aires. Look at look at the margins here. Just hover over any of them. Let's find the, let's find the, the most purple one. Look at these neighborhoods. Malay winning two to one yeah. in some of these. So hover over another one. Just just keep let's try to find the, the most lopsided for him. Look at this one. 72, 72. to 27. Yeah. That's like that's like in the heart of the capital. 100 percent urban. And that's a population with 158,000 people. We're not talking about, you know, just some little rich suburb with a 
20,000 people. Now, go to Google. I'm, I'm not telling you this, Hamilton, but like go to, if you're listening to this or watching, like go to Google Maps and look at Buenos Aires from Google Maps. It is a, again, th this is the equivalent of a Republican running for president and winning the five boroughs of New York City, but losing Westchester County, Nassau, and Suffolk. Yeah. Right? And, and losing Yonkers and, you know, you know, Jersey City and stuff like that across the, the Hudson. Like, Malay crushed the Peronists in the capital itself. But then when you look at the suburbs around the capital, he he got absolutely crushed in turn. He, he lost every single one of these districts around the capital city with the exception of a few of them to the north. Yeah. I mean, look at this. He, it, it, as soon as you get out of the city limits, it goes from being two to one for Malay to two to one in the other direction. Well, and it's I, I feel like on some level we're starting to see we're starting to see similar things in the United States. We've, we've illustrated this before. We've looked at Miami. We've looked at New York City. We've looked at Austin and, and we've looked at where these sort of where this sort of phenomenon is taking place. And what's fascinating is you look around the if you look, you, D.C. is obviously very, very blue. But what's interesting is all the counties around D.C. are one incredibly wealthy and have been trending more and more blue over time. And what it is, is, is the, the wealthiest people don't live in Washington, D.C. They live out in the, in the nice, you know, suburbs. Well, I mean, isn't this kind of a migration effect? Basically, these people who maybe used to be in the city voted for these kind of policies, and then when they had to step over the excrement to get their kid when, to school, decided they're going to move into the suburbs. When they got so their they money. Moved, Exactly. So they've got money now so they can get out and the people that are still stuck there and can't get out are ready for something different. Is yeah. it like that? That's what yes. I was thinking too. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. We, we, we see that in the suburbs. So it's the locust effect. We see this in the suburbs in a lot of areas. They, they like, they like the idea of these policies and, and they, and, and many of them get wealthy off the policies. Many of them get wealthy off of the government spending because they have government contracts or the ones. And look, I used to work in defense contracting, so it's not like I don't understand how this works. But there, there are people that they are, they are very, very close to power and their proximity to power is responsible for their wealth. Their wealth is not a result of them having necessarily created the best product or service within a competitive market. Now, sometimes it is, sometimes it is, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but in many times it's the access to power, which gives them the, the subsidies, gives them the regulations that they want, gives them the special advantages with respect to contracts. And as a result, they accumulate a great deal of wealth. And so they are incentivized to elect the people that will keep that apparatus in place, but they don't want to live with the consequences of those policies in the inner cities. Right now, they, they may not even like some of those policies, but it doesn't matter. They, like, for instance, they might not like the crime policies. So what do they do? They move away from the areas that are most impacted by the crime policies, and then they vote for the policies which get them the money because it's connected to their business. Same with education. They want to move yes. out of the inner city or wherever it is that they They're used to be. They're not putting their kids in the local public school. Right. They now they're looking at the the school scores and they're going as far out as they need to to get a better school. There's one more colorful map that I I, I want to show. It's the next um, tab that we've got saved that really shows the geographic divides for us. And here's here's yeah. the color coded map of the Argentine elections um, that just took place. And on the side you see by the individual provinces, and then the other one you see the breakdown by municipalities. And again, what you see is most of rural Argentina, with the exception of the the, the northern parts of the country, yeah. voted for Malay. 
And what you see also in the province of Buenos Aires is the exurbs in the rural parts of the Buenos Aires province voted for Malay as well. But it's all the suburbs here yeah. around the capital that overwhelmingly voted for, for Massa to the point yeah. that the province barely voted for the Pronists. So th this just, again, this just goes to show that I, I think what ends up happening is that the, the people that the people that have been continually promised better and better results, if only they will elect the, the central planners, if only they'll elect the people that's going to do the, the bigger social warfare programs and everything else. At some point, it reaches a level of devastation through inflationary monetary policy, through increased crime, through the complete inability to be able to find a job, all of these things to the point where they're like, screw it, I'm going to try anything other than the people that have been in power. The problem is, is that a lot of times you get candidates that they don't actually call it out for what it is. They try to work in the, they try to work in this little gray area of, well, we're, we're going to make some changes over here and we're going to make some changes over here. And they're not, they don't actually possess the courage. Now I, I will tell you this much. People need to understand that you can have a bunch of candidates run saying this and not win, right? There, there, there was a, there was a convergence of things taking place and you actually had somebody that was willing to get up and make a good argument and be completely unapologetic about it. One of my biggest problems with the left right now is that I watch the floor debates and every time we debate, we debate from the position of, we know you're all good people. We just agree on policy and they debate from the position of you're all a bunch of horrible bigots. And the end result is, is we spend half of our arguments going, I know we're all good people, but we just disagree. And oh, by the way, couldn't maybe we could do a little bit over here on, on this side because there's the good people there too. And their response is, you're all a bunch of bigoted, sexist, patriarchal transphobes. And, and they win. That's right, babe. One of your most viral videos, you stood there for probably, oh, a good 45 seconds talking about how, you know, I know none of you, you know, agree with slavery now, but you guys were <laughs> on the side of slavery back in the day and you still got excor excoriated. Well, and, that, and I learned a very valuable lesson. I learned a very yeah, valuable don't lesson. Don't give them an inch. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not debating with people that want to have an intellectually honest dialogue with me. I'm voting with people for the most part. Yeah. I'm voting. I'm, I'm debating with people that want to control me and control my constituents. And oh, by the way, I don't think they have good intentions. Yeah. Because it's either out of ignorance or there's something more devious involved. And either one of those are unacceptable basis for, for governing a, a commonwealth or a country. Exactly. And session is about <laughs> to start in January. And Nick has got the right energy going into it. I'm so excited about this. All right, we got a super chat from uh, 2A. I, I apologize if I if I messed up your name, man. I really I really am. 2A, are the Western leftist governments going to do whatever they can to punish Argentina for voting wrong, quote, in quotations, to ensure no libertarian government can succeed? I think that is a very real concern. I think it's a very real concern. Um, here's what I think. Here's the beauty of this, though. I think so many people are absolutely fed up. I think he's made a good enough argument. I think he's adamant about it. And I think his whole attitude is you can't, again, what are you going to do? What are you going to do, leftist government? What are you going to do, World Bank? You're going to promise me more money to prop up bad policies so that I can win this next election because people expect to see results overnight? He goes, no, I've already told you what the problem is. And I've already told you what the solution. I think he's dedicated to it. And I think he's willing to fight through it. But I think you're absolutely right. I think Western media, I think Western entertainment, that's going to be the big one. I think I think it's not just the media and academia and WEF and the World Bank and all these organizations that usually prop up leftist leaders with other people's money. They're not going to be there. It's not just BlackRock. Yeah. Entertainment industry, musicians, artists, everyone's going to come after him. But I think there's a phenomenon going on here where he has been, in, in my estimation, for those people that think I'm wrong, fine, but in my estimation, he has been so 
blatant and honest about what he actually believes and what the problems are, I think he's actually built for himself goodwill provided he sticks to his guns. I think he has created for himself an incentive structure where sticking to his guns buys him the time he needs to work through the difficult parts. The moment, he try, the moment he tries to stray away, that's where there's going to be problems. Like what people don't understand, the genius of Trump was, is that with, with a couple of notable exceptions... And there were some exceptions. A couple of notable exceptions. He stuck to his guns no matter what. And he didn't allow the political establishment, the media, or entertainment to, to force him to cower behind, oh, I don't want to be perceived as a, as a mean person. I don't want to be perceived as saying the wrong thing. He didn't care. He didn't care. He knew they were never going to support him. They were never going to vote for him. They were never going to come over to his side. And so he didn't try to appeal to people that he knew were doing everything they possibly could to hate him and were engaging in intellectually dishonest mechanisms in order to do so. And that's one of the biggest problems. I see so many Republican politicians, gosh, if we, just, if we just message it right, these people that desperately want socialism and to trans your kids, maybe they'll realize we're not such bad people. Dude, they can't stand you. They can't stand your ideology. And I think it's unfortunate, right? I don't see, I, I, will, I will repeat this again. I never look at individual people as my enemies. But I will look at ideologies as an enemy. And if, and if the ideology you're captured by is something that I believe is absolutely corrosive to individual liberty and, and human freedom, then I'm going to fight you with everything I got, and I'm not going to apologize for it, and I'm going to point out that the ideology you're attempting to push is horrific and hurts people, and I don't have to sit here and pretend you're a good person because you put a smile, you put a happy face on what you're doing to people. All right, we got another uh, super chat here from uh, Keith. Uh, is, it, is it Sogi? I hope it's... So, okay. So I've been watching for a few months. So glad you chose this subject. My wife is from Argentina. The legacy of the Perones left has a hamstrung all economic improvement until now. Keith, it's, it's really interesting to hear from somebody that actually has personal experience, your wife having personal experience down in Argentina, because that's one of the things that we look at. Um, you know, we, we will sit here after when we're, when we're not doing these episodes, we will sit here and just watch, you know, we'll, we'll watch YouTube channels. We'll watch different studies. We'll read about, um, in political philosophy, economic philosophy, how it's applied in other countries, how it's applied through those those various cultures, how it's applied through the history of those various cultural institutions, and, and why does it have, you know, similar impacts, and and it's it's always something where you look at this and you wonder, my gosh, how does how does there how do you achieve such a degree of intellectual capture where decade after decade after decade, it's possible to do this, and you know we we've come to the conclusion that. You know, Gramsci was right that when you capture enough culturally shaping institutions, you can essentially perpetuate an ideology no matter how bad it hurts you, provided you have enough enemies to blame. And this gets into the second part of what I want Christian to bring up, and that is not just, you know, not just urban versus rural, but the age breakdown. If you thought that it was shocking that Malay won the capital city and the largest urban area in the country, but then lost the suburbs while also winning the rurals and exurbs. Wait until you see how people broke down by age. So in Argentina, they have runoffs. So they have a first round where basically everybody that's a major party, you know, runs their candidate. Well, actually, first off, they have primaries. That yeah. was held in August. Malay won that primary. It, that was more of a symbolic vote because he was, you know, his party, you know, had rallied around. He created his own party, right? The Libertarian Party, um, La Libertad Avanza, I think. Um, and... He won that, which was a surprise because 
That meant that he got more votes than all the Peronists combined that were running, all the center-right people combined that were running. But then after the primaries, you had the first round where there were technically like five or six people running, but it was actually really a three-way race, according to the opinion polls. Um, You had Patricia Bullrich, who was the nominee from the center-right party, the more moderate party. They were the party that had- Mitt Romney. Well- she was actually more conservative than Mitt Romney. Okay. And I'm going to get to that in a second because she actually deserves a ton of credit and I'll explain why. But she was the nominee for the center-right people, the, the traditional conservative opposition to the pronists. Yeah. Massa, the minister of the economy, was the pronist nominee and Malay was obviously the libertarian nominee. And then, like I said, there were some other very minor candidates running. The exit polling from the first round showed Malay's worst group was the boomers. 60 plus. He did the war. He got he couldn't even get twenty percent of the vote with the boomers. To put that in comparison, Massa, the Peronist, got almost forty percent of the sixty plus vote, and Bullrich got about thirty one percent. And the forty five to fifty nine demographic, so these are more like Gen X people, like you know Hamilton and I's parents. They um they broke down a <laughs> little bit. And I. Well, you know, Nick and I. <laughs> Neither of you are forty five. We're Gen X. Uh, I'm forty five. Oh, okay. 45. So so and Tina belongs in. <laughs> Yeah, so Nick doesn't yet belong there, but (laughs) (laughs) these old people, (laughs) these two old people at the table here, Um, you know, boomer light, the, uh, (laughs) hey, you're the biggest boomer at this table. I have, you know, I've always said boomer is a state of mind. Um, (laughs) So, so the the second group, the 45 to to 59 year olds broke down as follows. Malay got about 25%, Masa the Pronus got 33% and Bullrich got 24%. So the two, the two center-right people kind of split the vote there, and then the pronists actually won the plurality. But here's where things get interesting. When you look at voters under the age of 45, things start to flip very quickly. Yeah. The 30 to 44-year-old demographic, Malay won a plurality of those people. Malay got 36%. The pronists got 24, almost 25%. And Bullrich, again, the traditional yeah. center-right, only got 18%. So- what you see with the younger demographic is more of them liked Malay, and then their second choice was the Peronists, which makes sense. You would think, oh, well, younger people in the U.S. are way more pro-left-wing than than their counterparts. So it makes sense that, that the Peronists would do better than the traditional center-right people. But what's surprising is that Malay, the libertarian, the most conservative one running, did better than both of them. Yeah. And then here's where things are just utterly insane. Yeah. My demographic and Hamilton's demographic, I'm still 29, so I technically fall <laughs> under, the, under the, the youngest group here. Yeah. Uh, Hamilton and I's group, so the Zillennials, the youngest millennials, and the Zoomers, the 16 to 29-year-olds, Malay crushed it. He yeah. got over 40% of the vote in a three-way race. Yeah, that's nuts. He got, of, of all the different age groups, he did the best with the youngest voters. And what you see is that Massa, the the pronist, actually did worse with the youngest voters. When you look at the breakdown, it's an inverse relationship. The older the electorate is, the more pro-peronist they are. The younger the the electorate is, the worse off the pronist did. You you see, again, pronist went 39% with the oldest, 33% with the second oldest. He he crushed it with the youth, and we saw a similar thing in, in Seoul and South Korea with it was it was young men specifically that, that gave the election to the conservative in, in South Korea, even though he was nowhere near what you know Malayos. But, but when they, you look at it, they're all all of them are trending more to the right. Um, as and you get younger, because yeah. if even the older ones, though, if you combine 
if you combine the uh, the Bullrich, which is also yeah. somewhat conservative, so basically they're all shying away from the the uh, mm-hmm. the left. Oh, there was a question in chat. Sixteen year olds can vote in Argentina. Yes, the Peronists lowered the voting age because they thought that it would help them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was arguably That's the awesome. greatest backfire ever. And here's the reason why: when the runoff happened. Some incredible things happened. So Malay and Massa both moved on to the runoff. Um, Bullrich was narrowly defeated. Um, she came. Uh, she she came behind Malay. So it was those two that moved to the runoff. And to her credit, Patricia Bullrich endorsed Malay, openly campaigned That's for good. him, That's put good. out tons of videos in support yeah, of him. Because the exact opposite would happen here in the United States. Oh, if I know. The, the center right parties that I think currently have the largest plurality in the in the Argentine Chamber of Deputies, like to their credit, they realized that the country was in such a crisis that they could not allow the Pronus to win again. And even yeah. though they did not want want somebody as radical as Malay yeah. to be the nominee, as soon as he moved to the runoff, they again all the to their credit, the center right threw their support behind Malay, and yeah. that was a huge deal. So, like, I actually do want to give Patricia Bullrich some credit because yeah. she she really did help him. Uh, she was president of his victory party too. And but, if you go to the runoff, here's where it gets absolutely insane. Look at the next tab here, Hamilton. This is the runoff results. Wow. Whoa. 16 to 24, 69% for Malay. 25 to 34%, 54% for Malay. And, and then he 35, lost else. 35 and older, that's where he lost. 40, 40, 35 to 44 was 45%, 45 to 59, 40%, 60 to 100, 40%. But he dominated so overwhelmingly between 16 and 34, and especially between 16 and 24, that that's what, that's what gave him the election. 16 and 24 are all Zoomers. Yeah. 25 to 34 are millennials. And so he won millennials 54 to 41, but wow. with Zoomer voters, the youngest ones, the ones who are just left school or just yeah. entered the workforce, or some of them are still in school, he won almost 70% of That's them. That's nuts. 70 to 20 with the youngest group. Because they're the one they're the ones that are going to be most impacted by bad policies going forward. I mean, they're, they're, we're seeing this in the United States to some degree with respect to the economic impact and people realizing I'm not going to be able to buy a house. I'm not going to be able to, you know, they say get married, but whatever. Not only that, but you got the younger generations typically um, rebel against whatever the, uh, you know, status quo of the older generations were. And Peronism well, is the status, status quo. quo yeah. was really, really far left, then they're going to rebel right. And that's what you what you're seeing there. Um, I've heard people say that Zoomers are actually more conservative, or the the youngest generation, even in the U.S., um, are trending more conservative than uh, than the millennials. Well, Hamilton, which when we, the millennials are those 35 to 44 year olds. Well, no, they're also the youngest millennials are the 25 to 34 year olds. That's right. Hamilton and I's group. Yeah. The older millennials are the 35, 35 to, to 40. There is a divide 30. between yeah. younger and older millennials. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why they call them the Zillennials because they're like half Zoomer, yeah, yeah. half millennial. Gen X is kind of like that too, even though they didn't give us the courtesy of splitting us up like that. But mm-hmm. what I find incredible <laughs> is that like his Malay's worst groups were 45 to 60-year-olds and anybody yeah. older than 60. That's he, who we depend on to win elections in America. He got crushed with those people. And you got to remember, he won the country by 10 points, right? But he lost 
boomers and older Gen X voters in a landslide by like 14 to, to 15 points. The only reason that Malay, Malay literally owes his entire victory, his entire victory to Zoomers, yeah, 70% of them. Crazy. And to give you an idea, the median age in Argentina is uh, is 32. Oh, wow. So, so Argentina is a relatively young country, which means that a majority of Argentines are younger than 33. And so, I mean, how, look at this breakdown. This is this literally explains right here why he won, right? Because if a majority of the population is younger than 34 here on this breakdown, it makes sense that that's, that's why he won, right? Yeah. And, and I, we would never expect to see something like this happen in the U.S. Well, and that's going to, let, let's go to, that's going to move over to the last segment here. Well, can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Now in Argentina, their system of government is a little different than ours. And doesn't the executive have a lot more power than our executive not, would? Not, I, I wouldn't say a lot more, but. It, and then how long is his term? So in, in, in a lot of countries, like more of a, a parliamentarian approach and whatnot, the president might be kind of the the head of state, but they're not the head of the government. So it's it's much more of a ceremonial role, um, whereas the prime minister is the one that really runs the country. Um, Argentina, the he's the head of government and the head of state, so he he actually does have a lot more executive authority, uh, which is kind of like on par with the president of the United States. Uh, they also serve four year terms, don't it's they? It's a four year term. Yeah, that's what I thought. And you can get reelected. Yeah, yeah. But okay, how, but how then? How did they swing so wildly when we looked at their inflation, and based on who was in power, the inflation swung so wildly? Is it because of their appointees? I, okay, so the reason that I think that the Zoomers and Millennials, you know, voted so over, especially Zoomers voted so overwhelmingly for Malay is a combination of a few things. One, libertarianism tends to be more popular than traditional Boomer conservatism. Yeah, with with younger voters. Two. You have to remember the state that Argentina is in. I said in a podcast a while ago, actually a long while ago, that the future is Argentina when I was talking about the United States. And this was way before this all happened. And the reason I said that is because Argentina is way further down the road to serfdom yeah. than the U.S. is. Yeah. Way further down. You're talking about a country with 140 to 150 percent inflation rate, annual inflation rate every year. Right where your savings are evaporated, and a massive bureaucracy, massive just, bureaucracy, a a debt to like uh, in the middle of a sovereign debt crisis, a country where forty percent of the country is in poverty, and we talked about at the beginning of the show. This is a country that used to be one of the richest nations in the world, and now a forty percent of the country are impoverished. That, well, but my question actually was less about how he like got these voters and more about the policies that a president of Argentina can implement. And so when he's walking along that whiteboard and he's saying, this is gone, this is gone, gone. There's no, there's is no he question. able to actually get rid of those? Because I know our president can't no, get no, rid my, of a lot my, of these Okay. Things. So my understanding is he can't just arbitrarily get rid of a bunch of like what would be considered federal agencies. But Can he defund it? Does he have power of the purse? This is what I'm trying to get to. Okay. Um, he, he can't just get rid of them. He can't just, because defunding something is the same as essentially getting rid of it. If he can just cut their budget down to zero, that's the same thing as getting rid of it. There, there's still going to have to be cooperation with the legislature on this. But I, my understanding is, is that he has a great deal more authority um, when it, when it comes to like the composition of these agencies than say the president of the United States does. The president of the United States is significantly hindered. Um, oh dang. What's the, what's it, it basically civil service laws to where you can't just fire everyone in a federal agency, even though technically they work for the president of the United States, you're, you're allowed to remove people that are say uh, political appointees or, or work in like strategic 
position. Well, it's, it's mainly political appointees. So it's become very, very hard to fire the bureaucracy within the United States due to those. Now, I, I don't think I don't know this for sure, but I don't think they have the same level of restrictions on the power of of the president in Argentina. But that would be one of the chief ways that he would be able to achieve his objectives apart from the legislature without requiring legislative assistance. The president has a lot of patronage power and appointment power. Emiliano actually um, said, who lives in Argentina, that the, the president of Argentina has more power than the U.S. president from their yeah, perspective. Yeah, because like, our Congress controls the power, the purse strings, basically. And, and I was just wondering if that's the same way in Argentina. Does their legislature um, control the purse strings or does the president have more power over that? So the good news about the legislature, and I told Nick this on the election night, for the first time in, I believe, like 50 years or so, the Peronists do not have a majority in either chamber of the Argentine legislature. Yeah. Um, so like, like that, that is, is a huge, huge thing. Now, obviously the libertarians don't have a majority. It's the center right that has a plurality, but remember that's the same center right that threw their support behind Malay in order to get him. And and that'll be the question is, is how committed they are to this. All right. We are moving to the last section now. That is what is happening now. All right. By the way, CWB said, hi, Nick, can you please shout out to my wife, Elizabeth? Love and appreciate you all. Keep up the good work. Hi, Elizabeth. Your husband is watching a great channel right now. Um, all right, so let's move on to the, the last little the portion here where I wanted to get into, you know, is this something that can could theoretically happen within the United States? And the, I mean, my honest answer is at this point, I don't think it could, at least not right now. Like if we're talking about 2024, the answer is no. Um, but let's say 2028. So let's take Trump out of the equation for a second and say, could, could you have somebody that believe the things that Malay does that talks about them the way that he does? Could that person actually get elected as a governor uh, or as president of the United States? And, and I think, I think a governor would probably be more likely. Um, but I, I also think the U S electorate is in a very, very different place than the Argentine electorate right now. And, and and you you see that within the age demographics and where the age demographics vote, you see that with respect to kind of, you know, the whole woke agenda is something that really has been an export of the United States. It's the worst export to the rest of the world the United States has ever produced. Um, and, and so I don't I don't think we're at a point where we could. And and honestly, when I look at um, when I look at more purple states, so Virginia's a purple state, right? We just lost, uh, we actually picked up a seat in the Senate and we lost three seats in the House. And that led to a 21-19 Senate and a 51-49 House. And I can tell you right now, the the <laughs> the things people are already talking about in Virginia is, oh, see, this is why. See, it's because we took too, we took too extreme a position on abortion. The, the position on abortion in Virginia was 15 weeks, which is... I mean, that's more liberal than France, right? And, and last year, the most extreme position we took on abortion was informed consent in the Born Alive Act. And yet Democrats won on that. Uh, the, the other big issue that I'm seeing is I'm seeing more and more Republicans say, well, the only way that we're going to win next time around is that, you know, we, we have to invest more in public education and we have to invest more. And I'm looking at this going... <laughs> You, you are trying to win on a Democrat platform. And it's not because I don't want to invest in education, but I don't think investing in government administration and monopolization of education is the way to go. Not unless you want more of the same. But the problem is, is that we have, we do have a lot of Republicans that want to be more comfortable at their little cocktail parties 
than they do actually want to stand up and understand what they believe and fight for it, if they even really believed in it at all. All right, there's, there's a lot of Republicans that believe that the, the key component of being a Republican is wanting slightly less taxes, right? And wanting to subsidize certain businesses that, that they like and are friendly with and are important to their districts. And, and that's, that, that is a, <laughs> and to Tina's point, and this is the point where I'm going to, I'm going to make some people mad. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care. The other big problem is exactly what, what Tina articulated earlier and what I've articulated too. Whenever you have somebody like this that is actually willing to get up and say it and is willing to fight for it, there will always be a percentage within the liberty movement, within the libertarian party, within the conservative movement that will get up and say, well, that just sounds too slick or he can't be right. Or I heard that the WEF likes him and they will, they will do no further research because the only thing they were looking for was bias confirmation that, yep, see, we were lied to again. They all suck. I'm better and I'm pure. I don't actually run for anything and I don't actually do anything and I don't actually work for anything. I just sit here and bitch on social media. Yeah, and I got my free yard sign. I demanded that the campaign bring my free yard sign. And, 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 I'm, not, my and yard. I'm not going to sit there and I'm not going to support any <laughs> candidate that at any point makes me angry or or if I get a piece of mail during a primary saying something that I don't like about him, then I'm going to use that as evidence that they just suck and I'm never, I'm not going to do anything to support him. We have, we have a percentage of people on the right that that is the position they take every single time. And because we're not going to get blowout victories with these, with these zoomers or millennials, when we have people that are willing to willing to do that to someone they know, because I've had it done to me. I had someone who has known me for 10 years well, Nick, I, I saw this, I saw this, this mailer and it said this about you. I'm like, well, no, that's not true. This is what actually happened. This is what, well, I don't know. What well, do you mean you don't, wait, 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 wait. That, that if it's in print, it can't be a lie. It, you mean something from my opponent came to your door and rather than picking up the phone because you have my personal cell and asking me about it, you just decided it was true. Yeah. Right. They, and, and again, they don't just do that to me. They do that to people like Rand Paul. They do it to people like Thomas Massey. They do it to anybody that stakes out a position that I'm going to be, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to fight for individual liberty. I'm going to fight for free markets. I'm going to fight for these things. And I am going to, I'm going to do everything I can to attempt to make a very good argument for it. And an argument that appeals more than to just my base, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to, they will look for the very first thing. The very first thing that is any sort of indicator that maybe, maybe they don't like something you said, or maybe they don't like a vote you took, or maybe, and rather than asking you or researching about it, the mere mention of it is sufficient for them in their minds to say, nope, see, I knew it. They're all liars. And I'm the only pure one. And if only I was elected, I, I've told people that before. I'm like, you know what? If you really believe that I, I Golly gee willikers, I wish you'd get off your couch and show us all how it's supposed to be done because the rest of us are in the trenches trying to make this happen. And we could really we could really use the help from someone as brilliant as you. We get slammed every single election cycle by people like, you didn't do enough. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And one year I finally had had it and I just said, before you ask me that, I want to know how many doors you knocked, how many phone calls you made, how many people did you talk about or talk about politics with in order to help sway them. And of course, people got all mad at me. Well, oh, why are you making this our fault? And it's because it is your fault. It is. Yeah. If I can only reach so many people, and if you aren't willing to speak up and you're not willing to 
make even the slightest sacrifice of your comfort in order to try to go and convince people, then you are the problem. That's so. it. <laughs> so if you're wondering, we're doomed. No, we're not. But, but <laughs> no, here's, no, no, no. Emiliano but already said we're doomed. He said, Christian is in such a good mood. I'll be the doomer today. And they said, we're doomed. Oh, no, I, I'm in a good mood for Argentina. <laughs> I'm, I'm not crying for Argentina. No pun intended. No, no, I'm, I'm, I am definitely, okay, you want to know what it takes to get a Javier Malay elected? It's, what, what did I say? It's 50% inflation and 40% poverty. We're not there yet as the U.S. Well, we're, they're further down the track than we are. The, Tina and I did an episode two weeks ago, I believe it was, yeah. that Nick couldn't make it in. And we talked about the left-wing civil war. And a lot of the things that we've talked about in that episode, in many ways, was a successor to some of our previous episodes where Nick was here. And we talked about how everything moves to the left. It might move slowly, right? But it, it always moves to the left. And... How, how do you stop it from happening? Well, I mean, you, it, the system has to be broken. People have to give up faith on these institutions and create counter institutions. We're not at that point yet, right? And, and so the the pessimist in me thinks that the only the, the only way for us to get to somebody like Malay is we, we have to go through it. We we have to go through this transition where the, the left takes over and ruins everything. Right, the zombie apocalypse has to come. Argentina is in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. For for those who who know the reference that I keep making in previous episodes, we're not there yet. We're at the beginning of the zombie apocalypse. They're at what might hopefully be the end of it, yeah. although we don't know yet. Well, here here's the here's the thing that here's the conclusion I've come to. So I'm just going to use Virginia as an example, um, and this applies in certain parts of the United States and not others. So again, we we. What did we lose on in Virginia? Well, we certainly didn't run like <laughs> Malay, right? We we ran we ran a, a much more um, nuanced idea of safe, yeah, better economics, lower taxes, um, better fewer conductor regulation. of their train wreck, right? <laughs> fewer fewer all, all that stuff. Um, that's what we ran on, and um, we we didn't on and the left pretty much ran on abortion. That's that's what they ran on, and that kind of gives you an idea of where people are right now. Mm-hmm. The, the the arguments that I have had with colleagues after this and talking about what we should have done, what we did wrong, what we should have done better, the, the whole deal. And there was three of my colleagues that um, were uh, mentioned anonymously in the Washington Post. Um, and they were talking about the problem with, you know, us, you know, Governor Yunkin mentioning a 15 week uh, abortion restrictions is, oh, why, why are we even doing this? And, you know, we, we don't know how to reach out to these these you know groups of people that are not voting for us right now. And so my question back to them is, okay, great. So what you're saying is, is that we have lost the cultural argument on a number of these issues. Great. What is your solution to winning back that cultural argument? And I'll tell you what their solution is. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to invest even more money into government-run schools, and we're going to invest you know, in, in higher education, and we're going to show them that we're, we're pro-education, we're pro the issues that, that these people really care about. Oh, okay. But so you're not going to make any sort of, you're not going to make any sort of institutional or, or meaningful structural changes to those, those organizations and institutions, which are pushing out all of this, right? The, the, the woke progressive crap used to just be at the university. It is in your public school. Now it is in your public school. And if you don't believe that you either got really lucky with your public school, or you just don't recognize that it's going on. Cause I represent a, a 61% Republican majority district and it's going on in ours. 
Maybe not to the same extent that it's going on in Loudoun County or some of these other places you've seen on the national news, but it's still going on. Oh, yeah. So my question is this, fine, if you want to tell me that there's certain cultural arguments that we're not, we're, we're not incapable of winning right now, then I want to see what your strategy is for actually providing what Millet talked about, a fair fight. Because it's not a fair fight when my constituents have to pay money to go to institutions and organizations that are indoctrinating their children. It's not a fair fight when my constituents have to pay tax credits to Hollywood in order to produce movies that indoctrinate their children against them. It's not a fair fight when the left gets to take money from my constituents and, and give it to industries which are actively working overtime to fight against the very things they believe. None of that's a fair fight. So you show me. You don't want me talking about some of these other issues which you think are harmful within your districts, but you claim to believe in those things, right? Claim to believe in them. It's just too hot an issue right now, Nick. Okay, great. What are we doing culturally, institutionally, in order to combat that? Just to... I'm not saying we got to give a bunch of money to the organizations that we support. I don't want government dollars going to organize. I don't want government dollars going to purposes that are not very explicit, legitimate functions of government. Okay. But what's the strategy to, t- to stop them from doing it? And their strategy is not to stop them from doing it. It's to do it even more because then they'll see that we believe in this too. Cause they want to be like, well then what the heck are you doing over here? What do you actually believe in? Cause it isn't what I believe in. And if that's the case, are we, should we be in the same party? Should we be in the same caucus? I don't know anymore. I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out this session. These people see the writing on the wall. They know that Virginia has gone to the left. Their only way to the governor's mansion for some of these people is to be watered down and as Democrat light as possible. They they, they don't want (laughs) to... Some people want to fight for their seats far more than they want to fight for the things that they claim to believe in. And that's one of the biggest problems that we have within politics. If you ever get to the point where you want to fight for the seat or the position more than you want to fight for the ideals that you promised your constituents you believed in, you're the problem. And you're a worse problem than the person on the left that is fighting for horrible ideals, but at least they're honest about what they want. At the very least, they're not a liar. I hate what they're doing, and I think it's horrible, and I think it's destroying the country. But at the very least, at least they're not liars. So, Nick, I know oh. that we're at the end, but one thing that we always try to do on this podcast is is try to end on a positive note or a somewhat optimistic note. And this is usually the part where I shut up, of course. <laughs> Here's the um, optimism is watching Nick do this from the floor of the House of Delegates. It's going to be awesome. No, that's actually... Uh, go okay, ahead. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm gonna be pessimistic. But <laughs> go, that's go ahead actually, and, go ahead and speak actually, un, un, uninterrupted. <laughs> that's, that, that's actually not optimistic because we're in the minority. And... And there's a really good chance that Democrats will have a trifecta again in Virginia. And if that happens, Californication is imminent, <laughs> which means zombie apocalypse is on the horizon for Virginia. So the question that I have is, and maybe this will will have us round out. I'm going to try to set up the positive side here. How do we get a Malay? How do we get a Javier Malay in the United States? Because we we were talking earlier for the last like 15 minutes or so about how we think it's incredibly unlikely that we would have a Malay emerge in the U.S. There's obviously the comparisons to Trump. I mean, the polling right now shows that Trump could win Biden. But oh, yeah. we've also brought up that, yes, even though they have a lot of the same persona and maybe personality and campaign styles, they still have in some ways different worldviews. There's a lot about Trump that I don't like. There's also some that I do like, but I, Malay is a trained economist that understands the Austrian school, understands the, the the problems with socialism. We just watched a clip today about him warning us about Gramsci's tactics 
via cultural Marxism and taking over all these institutions, which we've harped on about for months on this podcast. So this guy might not be able to achieve everything that he's campaigned on, obviously, but I have no doubt in my mind that he's on my side. Yeah. And so the question is, how do we get somebody like him emerging in the U.S.? And I want to leave it to you there because we talked about how it's unlikely. So how do we get to that point? I, I Again, because we're at a point where it hasn't gotten so bad that people are starting to question the popular narrative. The the question is, is what of us, what do those of us who actually believe in this that, that can now here's the part that's, that should be encouraging to all of us. Oh my gosh, this was possible in Argentina. Yes. Oh my gosh, this was possible in Argentina. Now we'll see what he does. Right, we, we it's it's like everything else, right? The the whole Reagan quote of trust but verify, or the other one I love is is I I I trust Jesus. Everybody else has to show ID, right? the The point is is we'll see what he happens. But if he if he is honest about what he believes and he is honestly trying to to make it happen, that the fact that this could happen in Argentina and the fact that it could happen in the places that it did in Argentina and with the people that it did in Argentina is all incredibly encouraging. And what it shows is that there's a couple of different ways that you what, what it, I think what it really shows in some ways is how important the youth is with respect to what they believe about their surroundings and what they think explains what's going on with their surroundings. Right now, the youth in America believe that the reason why the United States is in the position they are right now is due to capitalist greed and the fact that we're not inclusive enough. Right, that we don't have enough wise politicians managing our, our economy and our education and our healthcare for us. That's what the youth believe in the United States. The youth in Argentina aren't buying that crap anymore, probably because they've seen it. Despite being indoctrinated by it. And they've had somebody get up and they had somebody finally get up and effectively tell them that the emperor was wearing no clothes. So one of the things that we need to take heart from is the fact that People come to the truth one of two ways. They're either convinced by it because the, a very good argument was made and they've seen examples of it that, that suggested them that it works, or they've lived a lie for so long that they are, they are finally convinced that the lie is actually a lie and now the truth becomes appealing. And so both of those things are, are, are again, one's the hard way, one's the easy way. You can learn from other people's mistakes or you can learn from your own. Argentina is learning from their own right now. The question is, is how deep the United States will go down this rabbit hole. And, and I will go back to the two things that are very, very important in all of this. One is when you find people in, in the, we'll start with the political realm because it's honestly my least favorite response to how to actually correct this. We'll start with the political realm. When you find people that are actually willing to stand up for the things that you believe in, all right, trust, but verify. But once you've verified, all right, be willing to stick with them. Be willing to stick with them when it gets difficult because it will. I guarantee you there's going to be all kinds of elements within the Western media, academia, and Hollywood that come after this guy like you would not believe. You're going to see accusations come out of the woodwork. You're going to see everything else. Why? Because they want to take him down. They need to take down the person so they can take down the ideas. So when you have trusted, when you have verified, and you see someone like that you think is honestly standing up and trying to do the right thing, don't buy the first piece of crap that comes out about him because it's convenient. Be willing, if they're willing to, if they are willing to endure some discomfort to fight for these things, then you should be willing to endure some discomfort to support them as they fight it. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're a coward. And you shouldn't be, cowards don't have any right to, to, to hope for heroes to save them. So if you have somebody that wants it, but here's, but here's the other part of this, right? So find people that you trust, verify that you can trust them, and then be willing to fight alongside them. 
Not just support him from afar, fight alongside him. But here's the other thing that I'll go back to. No politician is ultimately going to save you. Because again, cowards don't deserve a hero to save them. People that are fighting, people that are struggling, people that are actually going there and they're doing, that's the people that other people want to come alongside and fight with. Right? Malay is here not just because he has a great message. He's here in part because he found enough other people that have been fighting through this and have had enough and are willing to sacrifice and endure something in order to actually make a significant change within their country. Now, if you actually want to achieve that within the United States right now and you want to try to achieve it without it going and, and, and actually just turning into 200% inflation and 43% poverty, if you actually want to achieve that, then you have to provide an example to someone because right now people are living very comfortably under the lie with no concept of what happens later on down the road. And when they find out in their 40s or their 50s or their 60s, oh my gosh, I made a horrible mistake, that's where bitterness really takes in. And that bitterness manifests itself in one of two things. They, they either accept that they were wrong and they're angry about it, but they've at least properly identified it, or they double down on all of it and then they raise up the next generation to do the exact same thing. And if you want a perfect example of that, go look at the icons of feminism in the United States. People like Gloria Steinman and what they've done and what they're currently doing to young women. They're not happy. And so why should young women be happy? The old socialists didn't get it right. And so they're going to make sure that the, the, the next, it's the next generation will be the socialist. So you need to actually provide a framework for what works, not just in politics, but what's, what works in your own life. If you at all can afford to do it, take your kids out of government-run schools. And don't necessarily trust that whatever private school you put them into isn't pushing this junk, because a lot of the private schools are doing the same thing. Take back that time with your children. This is going to be a generational fight. It could start two or three generations down when all of a sudden you have a bunch of kids stepping forward going, I was lied to by everyone that raised me. Or you can take positive action right now to make sure that you're not going to have to compete with a whole system of government-run institutions or government-sponsored institutions that are telling your kids to hate all of the things that you believe are absolutely essential to their well-being, emotionally, socially, economically, politically, but you've got to take control of that back for yourself. Don't wait around for a politician to give you permission to do it. Go do it. There doesn't need to be a single vote in Virginia right now for you to make the decision that you're going to play a far more active role within your children's lives with respect to their education, their worldview, what they believe. You can do that right now. No permission. Just takes a lot of work. But if you really want to save a country and you want to learn from other people's mistakes rather than our own, then you have to create this sort of environment where people can see what works and what doesn't. And then no matter how many studies the sociology department in Cal Berkeley puts out, people are going to look at that and be like, yeah, I don't care because that's nonsense because I've seen the genuine article in real life. So those are the two things you can do right now. Support the people that have actually demonstrated that they are worthy of your trust and be willing to endure some sacrifice along with them. And then most importantly, as it, as it pertains to your own family, your own husband, your own wife, your own children, your own circumstances, Start getting used to the idea of finding the people within your community. Find your people. The people share those worldviews. And you set up the sort of associations that you want to see. They can be social in nature. They can be economic in nature. But start working with other people in your local community, in your region. Start working with people that actually share your values and are not hell-bent on destroying the things that you actually believe in. And not, not only does that provide you 
an enormous sense of, of courage and a, and a sense of community and a sense of economic well-being. But it's also a lot more fun. Politics is not fun for most people. At least it shouldn't be. But my gosh, when I show up to a Homesteaders of America conference, I feel rejuvenated. Not because everyone there agrees with everything I have to say about politics or religion or anything else, but because I know I'm surrounded by people that do have a basic worldview that is rooted in this idea that personal freedom comes with personal responsibility. And that doesn't mean we don't help one another or work with one another. We do that all the time. If you want to look for people that are truly charitable, don't look for the person trying to steal from somebody else in order to redistribute it. Look for the person that reaches in their own pocket because they see genuine humanity recognized in another person and want to actually help and speak into it. That's the sort of community I want to be a part of. And that's the sort of community ultimately that is capable of enduring the garbage that is being pushed down us on our current culture. And the one that I believe will serve as the example for people that once they, once they finally realize that they have been failed by what they've been taught, and they start looking around for something that actually works, the example that you have within your own life and family will be all the evidence they require. All right. Gosh, almost two and a half hours. I think we're, I think we're done. I think we got it all out. <laughs> so we're doomed asterisk. <laughs> well, there is one more little thing as people are questioning whether Malay will make it to be sworn in or not. We'll see. Oh, actually, it, it Hamilton... Um, do you see the last, um, the second to last link that we have here? This is pretty quick. Oh, it's, it's, no, no, sorry. The second to last link. This is pretty quick here. Do we want to play this real quick just to show people who might still be skeptical? This is what the media thinks about him. This is what the this is what the Leviathan actually thinks about this guy. There's there's this clip here. It's only a minute long that, that shows multiple different networks and how they covered this man and how yeah, they're, go, they're go portraying ahead. It's a, it's a minute him. thirty. We'll 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 do this right. Give me one second. Outsider compared to former President Donald Trump has been elected to president of Argentina. Coming from the far right, Javier Malay. A far right politician. A far right politician. Far right candidate. Far right outsider. Extreme right wing. Malay is just way out there on the extreme scale. Argentina has elected a right wing populist. Right wing populist. Right wing populist. Javier Malay is a populist who lacks government experience and displayed erratic <laughs> behavior and foul language. You don't got to convince a, me. I already like him. There is some development. He's promised uh, some radical measures. Wielding a chainsaw to symbolize his <laughs> war on government spending, <laughs> threatening vital public services. He has absolutely no experience. His screeds resonated widely. His screeds resonated widely with Argentines. Particularly young men. Malay's controversial tirades against the political class have drawn comparisons to neighbor Brazil's former president Jair Bolsonaro as well as former President Donald Trump. He has been deemed the Donald Trump of Argentina. Malay's campaign drew comparisons to Donald Trump's here in the U.S. Malay, who has been compared to former President Donald Trump. You can guess who congratulated him by saying, make Argentina great again. Make Argentina great again. Maybe these anti-democracy forces will, in the end, uh, get overwhelmed. But that didn't happen in Argentina, not even close. <laughs> anti-democracy, anti-democracy. He just won a democratic election. What a punk.
Oh, gosh. All right. Well, listen. Hey, thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for the comments. Thank you very much for the super chats. Also, if you want to have some influence on future episodes that we might put together, please consider joining our community chat over in Circle. The link will be in the description. Also, we want to once again encourage you to go over to GoodRanchers.com. Use promo code Nick to get some discounts, to get some uh, wonderful food for yourself, for your family, and also check out their gift boxes uh, for those difficult to shop for people in your life. And or you could, as a joke, just send it to vegans. That'd be great. It's a, it's a way to convert them. <laughs> Anyways, we want to thank you all for joining us uh, very much, and we will see you next episode.